Hi, everybody. Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio. I come to you in a subdued state, having just tackled almost three hours of George Washington material <laughs> without a break. I actually did it without uh, any significant flubs except Potomac. Potom Potomac. Pot ah! Anyway, but for the most part, it was great. So I hope you'll check out The Truth About George Washington, which uh, I guess will probably be up before this video is up. So look a video or two back, The Truth About George Washington. If there's one presentation you're going to watch other than this one of course um i would suggest that one it's really good mostly because of the research all right oh freedomainradio.com slash donate please help us out i know i know the economy grinds on in its ungodly manner but uh you know 10 bucks 20 bucks a month or a one-time donation we really need your help and uh we can't survive without you so please freedomainradio.com slash donate or fdrl fdrurl.com slash donate to help us out all right let's move on all right first color today is george washington wait no no, no. first color today is matt i think that's what's <laughs> what's called a get <laughs> colloquially that would be a get it does under ten thousand YouTube views because George Washington right. is so many centuries ago but if you put tits on him <laughs> Can George Washington wear a low-cut top for the thumbnail? That's the that's the question. That's right. And for those of you into bad dentistry fetishes, <laughs> do we have the powdered head for you? Okay. <laughs> I had uh, a guy I knew when I was younger. So a woman, I, I can't remember if it was a woman or a man with, with really wide-spaced teeth. And he's like, man, that woman could eat a ham sandwich sideways through Venetian blinds. <laughs> Shall we and, do a, uh, a show just full of bad dentistry jokes at this point? I feel... Uh, I, I feel we could tie this into explore. my work on the truth about David Letterman because... Yeah, yeah, he's, he's he got has, a pretty good uh, smile, right? They actually wanted him to fix his teeth um, before he had his big first television break, and he said no. <laughs> That's what Freddie Mercury said. He's like, because he had these, like, seriously Stonehenge upper chompers. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's like, hey, they're healthy teeth. And what if it changes my singing voice to have my teeth fixed? Well, that's well that was the thing with Letterman. He, he tried like these inserts and he was just like slurring his words. And yeah, so he said, yeah, that's that's not going to work. No, the inserts that made Letterman slur his words were copious amounts of alcohol. <laughs> but I'm sure this will be cleared up in the presentation. <laughs> Another thing for folks to look forward to, the truth about David Letterman coming up very, very shortly. All right. Nice. All right. Up first today is Matthew. He wrote in and said, I'm a writer slash producer slash performer in a band my friend and I founded. We are working with other musicians and interacting with a manager and label. They are competent musically and the manager is highly successful. But what level for intimacy and connection should I set as my standard in order to achieve success? What is your experience of working with others in business? What made your business relationship successful? Do you have any advice and tips on working with others in business? Uh, well, they're always successful until they're not. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Um, well, Mike, I guess this is something that you and I could chat about. I mean, we're friends. We work together. We have what could somewhat be called a business i guess depending on how you classify it uh what are your thoughts is your manager bald matthew i think that's very <laughs> no. important he's no shaved he's head no he's baldness, not no <laughs> that's a no-go <laughs> well then oh, sorry just by the by i was uh, out for dinner with some friends this last weekend and um their and their kids and apparently there's a cure for baldness baldness that's been discovered 
And it's not a time machine, neither is it copious amounts of female hormones that give you a nice head of hair, but unfortunately, a voice like John Anderson of yes. But, I care, um, but I'm growing breasts. Oh, boy. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Um, so, and the consensus around the table, since I sort of asked everyone, is that the guy who I'm friends with, who's also bald, who is not as balding as I am, but that he should take the hair regrow tonic. But I should not. Uh, and nobody could come up with any particularly great reasons. That It would be weird, though, because my wife has never known me with hair. So uh, she's definitely don't. But, uh, yeah, I just thought that was kind of interesting. All right. Okay, just so, for shifts and giggles, I want to see you with a wig now, Steph. We need to get you a rug. FDRDonate.com. Do you think? All right. I think it just George, George Washington wig. <laughs> or I could get that weird undead, um, weird bit of like tumbleweed that's on top of David Letterman's forehead. You know, it's like it's been hanging on there for like 40 years or something. All right. Sorry, man. Sorry, let's get back. So, working with others. Well, this commonality of goal is, is pretty important. You're always going to have disagreements with, um, with people you work with, right? That, that's always going to happen. And the way that we try, you know, and if Stoy wants to get in on this too, he's certainly welcome to, but the way that we try to align our disagreements here at Free Domain Radio is to try and figure out what is our goal. And the goal is not obviously spread philosophy, this and that and the other, but what's the metric of that goal. And sometimes it's like donations and sometimes it's views and other times it's new uh, listeners and other times it's, you know, a variety of things. What do we and enjoy so, working on? What are we particularly passionate about or enthusiastic about at a given time as well? Because that often comes across in the work. So that's important to keep in mind as a consideration. And apparently, according to some portions of the listenership, what are we passionate involved that involves defending policemen? That seems to be a pretty key part of <laughs> just because they're facts doesn't mean I love the state. <laughs> anyway, um, so and there are times where it's like, oh, man, you know, we really need some donations. So we try and figure out what's most important that. And there's like, oh, OK, donations aren't too bad. So let's really focus on what can help get new listeners in and all that. So it's, it's sort of shifting matrix. So I guess the question is, what is the band for? Right. Mm, uh, I guess the goal is to spread good art using mass media. It's like how I've reduced it down to that. Mm, too, 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 too generic. Okay. Um, yeah, so the goal... Every, everybody wants... Everybody's, no, I want bad art, right? I mean, no. everybody wants to um, spread good art and everybody wants to use mass media. Yeah, and and yeah, I yeah. hate to be annoying, but it's got to be a little bit more lasery and a little bit less like Moonlight. Oh, yeah, I know. I, I, that's my most reduced uh, kind of form of it. But um, yeah, so the, the goal is to really communicate um, kind of ideas of freedom and uh, kind of be a model for uh, living a good life, uh, living with kind of volition and free will and um, the kind of be a model for people to you know show them the truth that's the power of art i think to me is the uh the ability that you can show uh truth kind of at the perceptive level you know um so people can kind of look and uh feel empowered you know i don't i don't like that um goal of you know hiding the brush strokes the um you know i want to empower people to be like you can come and do this too um and 
the goal of it is to kind of really passionately uh, communicate uh, the truth. Um, yeah. All right. So that's great. It's a bit, still a bit generic if you want okay. my feedback. Yeah, that's and great. Yeah. Because the question is, how are you going to measure that, right? Yeah. We've empowered 12 people. To, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. So that which, you, you know, that which you cannot measure, you cannot manage. And that which you cannot manage is very difficult to negotiate, right? Right. Can you explain that a bit more? Well, um, so Mike, how, how often a month do I say, let's focus on views, not donations, and then complain about low donations? <laughs> It seems it switches every other day. <laughs> every other day, right. It's... Now, hey, we what, haven't what Mike hit doesn't video realize, it, it actually hmm. switches much more often than that. He just dips in every <laughs> every other day. Right. So so it has to be, so do you want, uh, uh, how are you going to judge the success? So obviously you're going to put your content in and the... Um, uh, the philosophy, I assume, it's going to come out of two places. One is the lyrics, of course, and the other is the sense of life of yeah. music, right? So there is that sort of um, uh, a peppy, enthusiastic, technically excellent sound of people like uh, Rush. Uh, and then there is the, you know, dragging your soulless hide through a dungeon of semi-Nazism <laughs> known as Pink Floyd. And there is just like a, a wide variety of different ways that the sense of life can come out through uh, the music, and I actually prefer Pink Floyd to <laughs> Rush, uh, yeah. because I can only sound a certain amount of a hobbit screaming uh, in sounds higher than Mortal Man should produce. But um, so you're going to have who's going to be the lyricist in the band? Um, uh, Bryn, my friend, he is the principal writer at the moment. I do some writing, but he's principally the uh, lyricist okay. and the front man. All right. And so is your goal to, because there's a tension, right? If you are, you know, an explicitly anarchist atheist band, that is going to limit your consumability by the Definitely. general media. Trust Definitely. me, I yeah, can it, tell you for sure <laughs> it's going to limit your capacity to, uh, to get out into the mass media. And although there are bands like Rage Against the Machine and things like that that are explicitly, you know, do that kind of thing, right? But um, yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, I'm not sure how philosophical yeah, they that, are. Definitely. The phrase "rage" may <laughs> yeah, have yeah. something to do with the clue around yeah. that. Yeah, um, of course. When they were younger, it was just irritation at the Tonka toy. Now irritation. it is like it's really gone full florid. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's a balance there, right? So the degree to which you wish to have integrity to follow the ideas and the reason and the evidence wherever it leads is the degree to which you're going to annoy people. Now, some people are mature enough to be annoyed and, yeah. you know, accept that and say, well, just because I'm annoyed doesn't mean that whatever, and they come back and listen some more. And other people are like, ah, throw it down, you know, and off they go, leaving this wily coyote shape in in the exit of your art so there's mm -hmm. those compromises if you want more views or more downloads or more purchases then there may be some dilution of the message that's necessary yeah uh, and uh, so so these are decisions that that you have to make is it um is it a mission like you want to make the world a better place and you'll take whatever hits are necessary to do that that's sort of our 
business plan or do you want to reach more people with a less concentrated message which again it's not a good or bad thing it's just you know every person's decision to make for themselves and those i think are the kind so once you have these kinds of discussions and then figure out how you measure it like if you want um if you want uh, views and i'm sorry i'm thinking youtube right so uh, i don't know yeah. what do you what do you call them what, I mean, I don't even know. It used to be album sales, right? But what do you call it now for, for what you measure the success of music by? Um, I guess you could just call it the size of your audience or your audience. Uh, your, but there's your a way sales. of counting that, right? I mean, yeah, downloads definitely. on iTunes downloads, or whatever. So, downloads, you yeah. probably measure it in downloads um, or ticket sales, things like that. Right. Okay. So then if you're going to say our primary goal, and these will change throughout your career as a band, our primary goal, you could say, is to produce, you know, the catchiest stuff. We're going to put some philosophical content in there, but we're not going to alienate audiences with a philosophical message that may be more than they can handle in a four-minute song or a three-minute song because it's really, really compressed in a way that, you know, my windbaggery on the web is... Uh, it gives me room to really build an argument sort of slowly and carefully, but um, you guys have really, really concentrated messages. So, right. um, so you could say, look, our goal over the first year is what what would you say like a hundred thousand downloads again i don't know what your goal would be um you all have to agree on that stuff yeah definitely i think uh really we always think of it, the goal of being like the biggest band in the in the world but absolutely uh, but step at a time right i mean so what's your goal for the first year and what and that that will condition what kind of songs you're going to write i would assume right or at least yeah, record definitely. At least. um the the manager and label we talked to which is a pretty like major like thing that uh they managed like a number one uh selling band and it's it's kind of their idea that they pitched to us which i think we like and is the is a really nice way is they're coming in they they kind of picture like coming in from the left field they kind of you want to get a kind of more um less poppy sound more uh kind of they call it darker or whatever kind of sound and then give them like pop the pop music at the end uh and they kind of think that you get the best of both worlds where there's these people who don't really like pop music and they really kind of push it away and then there's people who just you know generally love pop music and um accept it and so the goal would really be to build an audience through um uh through making um not giving them like the full on uh pop you know full force of the band straight away um so um but we haven't really thought i haven't really thought about like the numbers thing i i always kind of figured that um labels <laughs> would would think about that kind of thing but i guess i'm wrong on that um well, no, it sounds like you guys are doing doing really great stuff already. And if you yeah. want to send us a sample of the music, we'll drop it in. I'll send you a link. I don't know if you can play it now. You, you kind of get a sense of like the music because I know what you're talking about when it comes to um, giving them like too much of, I don't know, the, the truth, you know, of singing the government and the state and like child abuse and things like that, right? Yeah. See, uh, I can start off podcast one as like, the stateless society, an examination right. of alternatives, I'm not building the case up slowly. Um, right. And so, but, but you guys obviously have a different choice. So, um, 
So yeah, we'll we'll drop the music in. Um, we'll get a link. Okay. We'll drop the music in in post production, just so people okay. can hear. Yeah. And, and what's the website? Uh, you can go to lifepark.com, but it's spelled L Y F E P A R C dot com. <laughs> Do you know? <laughs> I just just by the by, um, I have uh, in my novel, The God of Atheists. There's a boy band called yeah. Boy Band. But, <laughs> and the boy band called Boy Band has an edge. And do you know what their edge is? No, I can't remember. It's an umlaut over the O, <laughs> like two little German dots. Yeah. So it's Boy Band with an umlaut, right? Yeah. And, and their manager thinks that's really cool until he realizes no one can find them on the internet because <laughs> nobody knows how to enter. I know, I know. It's yeah, it's, it's a working title for sure. But yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but yeah. okay, so that's great. We'll, so we'll put the music in, and um, so if you guys have, um, like, if you agree on what the goal is, then don't make the goals too abstract. You know, like I don't think Mike, have we ever said like our goal is to enlighten the planet in incremental shades of lightning <laughs> rationality? You know, because like, did we meet that or not? <laughs> uh, yes, right. no, maybe unicorn Definitely. fish. Net. The more specific so, you can get, the better, definitely. The more specific. So, I mean, Mike, correct me if I'm wrong, but we basically, uh, we bounce back and forth. Basically, it's like that old 70s Pong game on your TV. We bounce back and forth between uh, views, downloads, and donations, right? Well, and there's a, it kind of fits into donations, but there's a lot of shows we do that we know aren't going to do well. Like, a lot of the parenting-related shows don't mm. tend to be huge download hits or huge, you know... Right video views on youtube but it's such important stuff and it's such core stuff and and there's certainly people that donate for that kind of material that we put out but at the same time we're putting it out there because we know it's important stuff that needs to be done and you know on the other side of that coin we'll do hey jennifer lawrence's nude photos got hacked let's talk about that (laughs) to uh hopefully direct some people towards that parenting material but right. well weirdly enough we decided to do that show and we found out that the research had already been done so that kind of efficiency is interesting yeah you need uh, yeah i think to have quantifiable information you know mm-hmm. yeah quantifiable is what are we aiming for because if you don't have a, a an objective metric of a destination you don't know if you've arrived or not or what to change course so if you say we want a hundred thousand downloads in our first year then that's going to condition you from the very beginning. What kind of songs are we going to put out? What kind of uh, lyrics are we going to use? And then you can figure out whether you're meeting or not that goal. And everyone kind of has to get on board with that at the beginning. you got to hack out all of the what are we about? What are we about, right? And uh, and, and figure out what your objective metrics are going to be. And then, which is, I guess, different for you than for us, is that you have to figure out what is the relationship between outside advice and the band because there'll be conflicts within the band and there'll also be conflicts between the band and the and the managers right and and the people who say listen kids we know what we're doing you know follow us and you know record this song in spanish and uh, you'll be able to retire next year and and then there'll be times where the people in the bands half the people in the grand agree with that and half the people don't and and all that right so uh, those kinds of challenges are really important. So there has to be, you know, what is our objective metric? How are we going to decide internally how to resolve conflicts? And what is our relationship as a band? What's our veto power between us as a band and the outside influences who are going to want to tell us what to do? Right. Yeah. Uh, talking about the band, I wanted to also say and mention is a crucial point is that we've uh, 
we've had we've gone through like five members it's been a quite growing learning process that we've been going through and we've gone through quite several members and uh we we're trying to really understand our standard and establish how to really build a band so uh, we don't actually have any current members except for me and uh, Bryn at the moment so it's actually we kind of as a byproduct it would be so good and I want to put it out there to the audience that would be listening to this if there's any musicians out there that want to uh, be involved in our band uh, feelings nothing oh, no. more than what have you done man what have you done <laughs> karaoke stuff. Like, oh, sorry, like, sorry, <laughs> sorry, musicians. Sorry, sorry. Like music, you music does not like me back. Sorry, I'm, yeah. I'm, back. I'm back. And and a really like a really important question for us is like the how did you for you like the standards that you when meeting a new person and evaluating a new person, um, what kind of markers and what. Uh, characteristics, kind of intangibles, and things like that. Did you do you do you observe? Did you find that uh, crucial and just that that kind of question? Do you, if you understand what I mean, um, like how how to evaluate people who would be good at joining your band? Yeah, definitely. Um, well, first, you have to understand that a significant portion of musicians are interstellar douchebags. I don't mean to that's just the whole true. profession. <laughs> But it's very true. Especially those drummers. But um, <laughs> always slapping their knees under the table. And um, no, I mean, so personal experience with your your business. You know, obviously, there's a there's a thing where we I know how to evaluate if someone's good at music. Um, but yeah, so uh, but for you, like the characteristics you found in your kind of business, what what characteristics do you find were really um, kind of essential for you to function? with them mind if i jump in stuff yeah and it'd be so good as well you know you said with uh, asking mike and stoyan and stuff like that i mean that's that we can find out the answer right now so well i think i mean bare bones i think we all agree sharing similar values is really important Definitely. you know if uh, you value honesty and the people in your band don't that's going to be a problem yeah. <laughs> um but once you get past like the the basic values uh, I mean, one of the biggest things I would say is someone who's a motivated self-starter who's willing to work hard. Mm. I mean, the amount of people that fit that category is incredibly small. Yes. And you're no doubt going to face adversity or challenges over the course of of um, your musical careers. And having people that can, you know, not so much dust yourselves up and keep moving forward, but not... There's nothing worse than like someone that's a motivation sink or a motivation black hole where it's just like, I've spent time around you and now I have lost my will to live. (laughs) But you you want someone around you that you actually enjoy talking to that is a creative problem solver who you're going to have engaged, fascinating conversations with about not only what you want to do, like the big gold dream projects with the band, but, you know, any day-to-day problems that come up that you need to deal with. You want it to be as enjoyable of an experience and finding someone who has that motivational pep to them and is willing to work really hard is, uh, I mean, those are some of the qualities that I think are essential for any type of project, which is going to succeed long-term. I would also add to this that um, if you are really, really great at what you do, you gain a lot of negotiation strength 
You definitely, right. yeah, I mean, definitely. so I'm sort of thinking like, okay, uh, um, of a queen, the band queen, right? I mean, were they really going to say, you know, I'd really like to upgrade this lead singer cause <laughs> you know, right. teeth are kind of funny looking and <laughs> he's getting a bald spot. I mean, he was widely considered like the best front man in showbiz. So that's who you need. And, and, and a fantastic singer, obviously bastard smoked and never took a singing lesson. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> Uh, so, uh, or, you know, we, well, Brian May, okay, all right, you know, we could get somebody who can, you know, pull the cat guts a little bit faster. Uh, and they, of course, all the members of Queen wrote top, uh, like, number one songs. They all wrote number one songs. So, great songwriters, great musicians, uh, and so on. And so, there really was no upgrading uh, right. of, of those guys. And that gives them yeah. an elite bond, if that makes sense. Like, they're not going to say, the U2 is not going to say to Bono, Oh man, you fell off a bike and you can't play guitar. That's it. Yeah, you're out of here, man. We, we're going to start <laughs> auditioning other people. You know, plus your voice is getting a little old, and you are standing sounding like a creaky weasel these days. So you're out of here, man. Like you're not going to do a whole lot better than having Bono as a frontman. So I think just that dedication to excellence is going to give people like once they feel like they're part of something that can really go the distance. It's really special. It's really powerful that's going to bring a lot of, like a strong current puts all the fish pointing the same way, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I definitely agree. It's kind of looking for people that <laughs> I just get to the point where I'm like, I can't replace you. <laughs> you know, you're, you're the yeah, man yeah. for the job. You're the woman for the job. You know, you're the person that, like, I can't find anyone else that does the thing that you do is the, is the thing. I'm yeah, really like Coldplay, I'm going to say to Chris Martin, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, you're good looking. Yeah, you're married to Gwyneth Paltrow for a while. But really, and you write most of the songs. But really, we've decided to upgrade. It's like, I don't think that. Like, uh, um, what's the best? NXS tried that, right? They got this, uh, they had this whole show, um, which was like a big audition show, to replace Michael Hutchins, who auto-asphyxiated himself to death. And having seen his girlfriend, I can, <laughs> knowing what she's like, it's a... See why? And they got this guy, um, uh, can't remember his name, but they got this guy won and they went on tour and I guess he did okay. And now he's back living in his, uh, in his trailer and the whole thing has just, right? So Christopher Hitchens was just this, sorry, Christopher Hitchens, <laughs> Michael Hutchins. <laughs> Although Christopher Hitchens, I would have paid damn good money to watch him uh, do a uh, new sensation. <laughs> I'm, I'm in between drags of his cigarette <laughs> yeah ah, new sensation <laughs> um so yeah michael hutchins you do like that sinuous i mean bluesy rough voice was like gorgeous and uh, he had fantastic stage presence and he was very sexy and all that and you, you can't up they, they tried they they basically auditioned the entire planet to find a new michael hutchins and couldn't and it's like like the doors right i mean like jim morrison was this at least when he was young was this you know shanky haired uh, slinky bluesy god of leather tight panted sexiness and then you know he dies doing drugs in paris at the age of 27 because he wants to be a poet because he listened to his yoko ono but anyway um and what do they do they didn't say ah job opening (laughs) Let's right. go get someone like Jim Morrison. It's like, you can't really do that very easily. Those people are incredibly rare. You might as well just try and play the lottery. Although more people win the lottery than become 
rock stars. So I would say just devote yourself to your craft. And I think in particular, given how live performance is even more important for bands now than it used to be because of musical piracy and so on, you know, really dedicate yourself. Like I've never understood, never understood for the life of me. You say this to your front man, but why there are bands like Men at Work or, or, or the, the Men at Work or the Cars, the bands that just sit there. Well, thank you very much. Ding, ding, they stand there like, like mannequins with a moving wrist to play right. their instrument. I mean, why the hell aren't you jumping all over the stage? Why, why the hell aren't you, you know, doing the Mick Jagger strut or the Freddie Mercury call and answer or, you know, the, the, uh, the Sting, you know, bouncy, jumpy castle thing or whatever? Like, why the hell aren't you doing these things? I mean, these people have paid ridiculous amounts of money to come and see you. So don't give them, you know, this, this mannequin with moving lip stuff, like get out there and really engage and, and push those boundaries and risk being rejected and risk it not working, but go out there, grab the audience by the balls and, and hold them high kind of thing. And I, I you know, that to me, I've never really understood why, why people don't do that. Like uh, there's a, there's a guy in Phil Collins band who looks like this incredibly bearded garden gnome, and, you know, unless you like really watch his hands, it's like, is he a statue? Is he is he actually moving or not? I can't tell. And why wouldn't you? Uh, Paul Collins does a great job as a front man. But uh, why wouldn't you get into the crowd's face and really get them going? Because there's got to be a reason to go live. And um, I've just heard complaints from a lot of bands, uh, people who go to see bands, that they just the band does not really engage the audience. There's like this yeah. giant wall. It's like and I, I went to see, yeah. I saw Yes a couple of times, and uh, they were not really <laughs> very engaging with the audience at all. Um, and, um, uh, but, you know, I saw Depeche Mode way back when, um, gosh, like, I don't know, more than 30 years ago now. No, very engaging with the audience. Saw so UB40, they were pretty engaging with the audience. But the front men who can just grab the audience, really connect with the audience, have the vulnerability to go out there and put your all out to try and connect. You know, when I speak, I try to get that little bit going uh, as far as I can with the audience to to be a little unpredictable, to be a little vulnerable, to be passionate and so on. And that's just my particular perspective or opinion. But man, you know, you've only got one life to live uh, and the audience is there dying for you to grab them. I mean, they already, you know, they love you because they're there. So go and get them and take them on a journey called enthusiasm. And I've just, to me, it's like, Going to see guys who are just like dum de dum de dum. It's like, what are you doing? I could, yeah. you know, get more. I could, I mean, I could prop up the album cover and listen to the C- CD, and it's the same thing. Yeah, it's like uh, it's like the audience showed up, but the band didn't. Uh, mm. You know, right, 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 right. Or, or yeah. So anyway, I think if you get the front man who's willing to to really engage and 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 get involved with the audience Uh, not you're not just playing to a black set like a a set of lights and the tops of people's heads right but there are human beings out there you could really connect with and i think that is uh really uh really uh engaging you know use it for good not like hitler for evil but you know i think you could do some really great stuff that way and that would be my suggestion as well uh, that everyone in the band should get into that kind of stuff yeah and we really do have that and we really um me and bren we really I really, really good at doing uh, music. So, but it's, it's not just, a play; it's a show. Anyway, yeah, but that's that's the thing that we struggled with with um, with the other members is that we're really passionate and enthusiastic, and it's like it kind of freaked them out, and it's like that doesn't work. Um, so, oh, if you're not aiming for the top, I I just don't even know why I show up. 
Yeah, exactly. If you're not aiming to just be the very best, um, that's just much more fun. And and not aiming to be the very best, and not even by historical standards, but by future standards, wild stallions, right? But not aiming to be the very best. I mean, what's the point? Because if you don't do that, you're saying that you have some correct preconception of your capacities. And I can tell you, man, I mean, knowing what you can do ahead of time is a fool's quest of self-limitation. You don't know. You just keep pushing and keep pushing and get better and get better. You don't know where you're going to end up. And I really dislike the self-limiting stuff. It seems to me um, very stingy, very stingy. So yeah, if you guys have broken through that barrier, fantastic. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to talk about how did you find how could, uh, when we found we put these emails out to lots of different managers, right? And we got one back, which was kind of our ideal manager uh, that we thought was going to be our ideal manager anyway. And the interaction with him and meeting up with him, that was a very, a very uh, big growing process. That was very scary for me. Um, I felt quite a lot of fear from going from where I am to going into like private, you know, clubs with, you know, it's very, you know, people with big like uh, bank balances and, you know, crystal cut glass and all that kind of thing, right? And that was a big learning experience for me. This doesn't sound like the edgiest band in the known universe. (laughs) Ah, we only play places with the finest crystal (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no it's just I yeah said, was that a paper cup i saw <laughs> bang i'm off the stage <laughs> call my agent i'll be in my trailer <laughs> um and um his kind of his treatment of us is being a bit uh i don't know what his world is like and uh his contact with us is months of silence and then you're ringing us you know and uh it's been quite frustrating, and I, I'm to the point where I, I just want to contact a, lots of other managers now and kind of be no, done. With no, that. no, no, no. I, I wouldn't suggest that. I wouldn't right, suggest that. Do you know the best way to get people's attention in business? Uh, what, what is it? Well, the best way to get people's, and I'm going to be somewhat technical here. Um, I got this from an article in the Harvard Business Review many years ago, but the best way to get people's attention in business is to make them a fuck ton of money. Yeah. Yeah, I I agree. Right, so the reason that you're not getting a lot of love and attention from the manager is that the manager has got bills to pay, and he's quite keen, I would assume, on dealing with people who are going to make him the proverbial FT of money, right? Yeah. And so the best way is just keep making great music. Yeah, I agree. I really got in this mindset of this kind of unhealthy thing, uh, you know, obviously from uh, from my, like, trauma and stuff like that, that I, you know, I was like, oh, <laughs> this person's just going to magically give me things now. My life He's is solved. <laughs> yeah. I am his infant and he is my parent, and I will get everything I didn't get as an infant from this person. No pressure now. <laughs> Yeah, and so yeah, that's the work, right? I, I see that it's really that you just have to double down on yourself, like all the time, and it's just you just be kind of build an industry around you rather than like you go to this guy and now you're like part of this thing. You know what I mean? 
Yeah. And you have to accept that the time of childhood is gone. Yeah. Is past, is done. And you, you know, so much of success in adult life is to do with closing off the grieving of unmet childhood needs. And I'm really, really seeing that, definitely. And I'm really growing a lot and really uh, that's happening for me. And I'm... Uh, but yeah, I'm seeing. I'm str- You know, I've you know the struggle and stuff like that. But um, yeah. yeah no, it's very hard to give up. You know, when you didn't get what you needed as a child, it's very hard to give up those needs, right? There's a line from Annie Lennox: "Give up your needs, your poison seeds." And um, it is really, really tough to to give up those needs because they they're just needs that you had when you were a, a baby and a toddler and a kid and recognizing that they're just not going to get met and, and never will be net met. And, and if someone is going to offer to meet your unmet childhood needs as an adult, well, they're just going to exploit you exactly. because they're, they're holding out from you. You know, it's like those, <laughs> those fish deep down in the ocean that have those, they're called angler fish, I think. And they have those little dangly, lighted things that attract smaller fish. Like, oh, the pretty light. Ah, the giant teeth. (laughs) And people dangled in front of you, you know, hey, I'll be the motive force and propulsion behind your life. And then you get passive and resentful and and so on. And anybody, yeah, anybody who's going to tell you that things are going to be okay and someone else is going to take care of it uh, is, is somebody who's trying to hypnotize you into falling into your unmet needs so that they can pick your pocket dry, which generally tends to be a repetition of the abuse that occurred earlier. And it really stagnates you because you really um, give up your will, you know. You give up your ability to make action. And, uh, yeah, so, yeah. Okay, that's good advice. That's great. Well, I, you know, just just by the by, like when I was young and innocent. (laughs) Actually, I'm a lot more innocent now than I was young. When I was younger, I met, I went on a date with a nurse and she did not show up in the outfit I'd come to expect from dates with nurses in certain shorter videos that I'd have borne witness to. But she, she, she worked uh, in um, a mental health field and she, she said that, you know, people come in and, and, you know, they're overwhelmed and they're exhausted and they you know and all they want to do is crawl into bed and curl up and 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 part of me was like oh the poor dears you know you should let them curl up and let them rest and 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 let them recuperate and she's like no you can't let them do that yeah you have to like prod them out of bed and get them moving because if they go into that state they don't come back sometimes or at least it's very hard so yeah, you've got you know, to kind of be stoic, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah, but you can't let them regress or they'll pop out of existence, right? And right. we, you know, you have to, you know, as they say, mental dysfunction is almost always the result of the avoidance of legitimate suffering. And when you didn't get what you want as a kid, you need to mourn that. And then you won't be exploitable by people who are going to offer you a new childhood uh, because they can't. It's all... All, all, all gone. Right. I've always felt this kind of interesting nostalgia about days gone by. I think a lot of people do. The times long ago where you know things were different, or 
things were better or the future was limitless. And of course, you're young, right? So to you, the future is limitless and it should be. And that's how you should approach things. You know, when you get older, <laughs> the old Steve Martin things go, which I said before, a series of closing doors. <laughs> you yeah. know, when you're young, all these corridors and doors and it's like, let's go uh, camping. No, sorry, we're closed. <laughs> we don't do that anymore. And um, so I think that uh, people prey upon this um, nostalgia and... Um, it is really, uh, uh, it is really a dangerous game. You know, the past is dead and gone, and we can return to mine it for treasure, but we can't live there. You know, there's an old saying. I can't remember who came up with it. The past is a foreign country. They do things differently there, and that has to do with the transmutation of memory. That uh, I can't go back to my past. I can't go back and fix anything because I don't even know where it is. I don't even know what's real or not. I mean, you know, some things I know are real, vignettes and so on. Like, I remember sitting right before we came to Canada in 1977, sitting in the empty place we grew up in, and I was staring out the window, and I was thinking, shouldn't I feel more about leaving this country where I grew up and going someplace new where I don't know anyone? I felt nothing good or bad about it. And so that, I, I believe that happened. I'm certain that happened. But I don't know what happened an hour before or an hour after that, right? The, the problem with, with memory is it's, at least for me, it's all snapshots. There's no, there's no continual movie. And you can't go back because there is no real place called the past. There's what you selectively remember and there's usually good reasons for what you remember and what you don't, which I sometimes, when I have idle moments, I pick up a memory and say, I wonder why I remember this and not the hour before or after. And there's usually a good reason for it that has to do with self-knowledge. But you can't go back to the past because when you were in the past, everything was fluid and moving forward. Like a year from now, I'll remember this conversation, but I won't remember the whole conversation. And I won't remember everything that I'm looking at. I won't remember which shoes <laughs> I'm wearing, like I will have tiny little snapshots. But the past is a photo album, not even a movie. And the photos are full of things that may or may not be true. And even a movie is not you actually living the life. And so there is no healing the past because the past has no existence at all. The past is only, it's like... um the past is like the bottom of a shallow lake when it's frozen and half dusted with ice. You might be able to see a little bit. You can polish a tiny little bit, but the ice blows, things move, <laughs> ice thickens, and it just all fades from view. You can't go back and fix anything because there is no there to go back to. And people have a tough time with that. Tough time with that. Yeah. Yeah. Um I don't think I have... I'm not trying to think. Do I have any more questions for you? Um, do you have any more advice at all? Anything off the top of your head that you have? That, uh, no, I, w I would say this, though. That I would say this, though, that, that uh, you know, have, maybe have uh, the, the guys listen to this or your partner in, in music listen to this. And, you know, if you guys want to call in and, and sort of work through this in more real time, I certainly would be happy... You know, you can say, oh, you know, this guy's now got, what, 25 years entrepreneurial experience. He's been successful in a variety of fields. And I certainly would be happy to sort of hammer out some 
goals and metrics with you guys if you know certainly would be helpful for other people and maybe be helpful for you guys too so that's one other possibility right oh and i just wanted to say um i just wanted to put it out there to the audience that would be listening to this or are listening to this um the yeah i am looking for band members and should i give my email address out on here i'm fine with doing that so uh if they want to contact you can you can send uh, send emails to to Mike and, and we can forward them if we need to or whatever yeah. we'll we'll figure something out. But uh, hey, email uh, okay. me, I'll forward everything to Matt. And uh, okay, cool. I also want I also wanted to put it out there because I am looking to date uh, women. So uh, if there's any women out there that are listening to this and are interested in me, then uh, women don't like musicians, Matt. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Uh, no, it doesn't come easy. <laughs> you know, listen, man. Listen, man, forensic accounting. <laughs> I'm telling you. I think I'm telling I, you. I've, I've been for being... white cop fraud is like catnip for these chicks. Like you say forensic accounting and their clothes evaporate in a puff of yeah. hormones. Incredible. I got, I'm trying to like kind of get a good sense of because I know that maths is like a really good thing. If you look at people who are successful or financially independent and you're talking about quantizing, you know, and you know stuff like that your your stuff you really have to have like solid data but but the extent i got into counting was just googling it and i was like i started to read the wiki wikipedia page and i was just like oh this is so boring (laughs) no you know what in the history of mankind nobody has ever gotten to the bottom of the wikipedia page uh on accounting it's it's just one of these weird little quirks like down at the bottom that's like last updated there's just an infinity symbol because nobody can (laughs) get through all right. Okay. Well, thanks. Thanks for the call. Best of luck with your career. And uh, yeah, if you want to join his band uh, or be a groupie, I believe, uh, then just uh, we'll hook you up. <laughs> All right. Thanks, man. Before we go, Matt, oh. I just want uh, yeah. one yeah. other tip or something to be aware of. And I, I point this out because I think it's one of the most important things in not just business relationships, but any relationships. And it gets right. overlooked like on a regular basis. So awareness of balance of contributions. We talked about like the front man before, and if the front man is out there and he's the draw and he's popular and he's contributing a significant amount to the band's capacity to fill a venue because of his charisma. And let's say the other people in the band, they don't have that charisma, but they're just good, solid musicians. They work really hard. Maybe they're more on the songwriting side of things. It's just it's important to have an accurate appraisal of what everyone is bringing to the table. And if someone is bringing a lot more to the table overall, and this can mean, you know, multiple different areas, just overall, if there's vast disparities, that's not going to be sustainable long-term. Yeah. I've really observed that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And be assholes to each other in the creative process. Definitely. (laughs) 100%. Don't you ever, don't you ever get that where like a, a band puts out a song and you're like, did anyone outside the band moms <laughs> listen to this song? Yeah. <laughs> ever. Did anyone Google how to sing? Like anything? It's just, you know, like there was a band. Oh, God, Mike, I'm sorry. I don't have a keyboard now. But uh, there was a band. They put out an album called A Pocket Full of Kryptonite. And they had a really great song called Two Princes. You know, one, two, princes stand before you, kneel before you. That's what I said now. And it was like, that's a great song. And then they put out a song called What Time Is It? That basically it sounded like them walking into their equipment in the studio and crying out in pain. <laughs> and it's like, didn't, didn't ever like, like, or like, <laughs> Synchronicity is a great album. And then there's a song by Andy Sum- Summers called Mother, which again is like, 
I scolded myself and walked into an instrument. And it's like, doesn't anybody listen to this? And I, it's the same thing again to sort of return back to Queen. They all did solo albums. <laughs> Their solo albums were not good. Uh, I think that's really right. So uh, Freddie Mercury did a solo album. There's a picture of his face on the front. There's a picture of his face on the back. There's a picture of his face on both sides of the album sleeve. And I'm pretty sure he was able to inscribe a picture of himself on the needle of the record player. And the guy who signed the, the contract for that album said later, like, that was the very worst deal he had ever made in the music industry in his life. Because that album cost a ph- phenomenal amount of money. And, you know, tanks like the Lusitania. Uh, it was just horrendous. And it was not a good album. <laughs> not a good album. And again, it's just like... Well, they didn't have each other saying, no, dude, come on. <laughs> that sucks. Right. I did have one last question, actually, of contracts. Uh, the, I didn't really, the importance of reading contracts and what's your experience? I don't know if you've signed contracts and things like that before, but if you had any advice on. What I will say is that I don't think I've ever read a single musical autobiography where they said, oh, you know, we just paid too much attention to the contracts. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we you know, we, we really should have just indulged our, uh, you know, uh, indulged our love of contracts and thought less about the music. Like, I think <laughs> yeah. that they, anyone, like, there is every single musician that I've ever read about who said, well, first of all, we couldn't believe we were getting paid uh, to do what right. we love. And, and secondly, we stopped getting paid, <laughs> right? I mean, there's uh, a song called Death on Two Legs by Queen, which is a really ferocious song about one of their early managers who ripped them off. Uh, mm. Billy Joel got regularly ripped off uh, for like 20 million bucks or something like that. Prince got the word slave put on his forehead. Uh, George Michael stopped recording for Sony because they wouldn't let him out of uh, the contract. And uh, it's right. brutal what happens to musicians with contracts. Uh, a queen just t- took it all over themselves. They're all like, dude, we're smart. We got PhDs. I think we can figure this out. And they did. Definitely. There's, this, so, there's, music you know, called, um, there's this musician called Dead Mouse. Uh, he's like a DJ house producer, and he is this real guy who just is really self-employed and just employs, just really treats it like he employs his manager, employs it. He just, he just really manages it all himself, and I find that as a really good model for um, quality control and self-ownership of your music and things like that. Yeah, it's important to make sure that you don't neglect areas that are not nearly as much fun, but are equally right. important. You know, like yeah. if the most successful band on the planet, someone has to do their taxes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> not well, going to be fun, fun but if they I don't do it. it, they ain't going to be playing Wembley. It's not going to happen. <laughs> you know? Yeah. No, yeah. It, it is really, really important to to focus on on the business side. Um, uh, and people go kind of crazy. If I remember rightly, uh, Sting's accountant stole a bunch of money from him, and he had to take the guy to court and all that. I mean, it's like uh, you you gotta. You got to keep track of the Benjamins, baby. That's as much art as, as anything else. I agree. Yeah, definitely. All um, right. Okay. We're going to move on to the next caller if that's all right. But uh, thanks. Thanks. Best bye. of luck. Thank you. Bye. All right. What we'll do is put a song from Matt's band at the end of the show, a full song for those that want to check it out. And up next is Dan. Dan wrote in and said, what does it mean to find yourself? And why is it so often associated with being attainable through travel and, quote-unquote, getting lost? Specifically, (laughs) advice for those going through strenuous times in their life. Yeah. (laughs) Finding yourself generally means I want to get laid 
and not <laughs> people know about it. That's what <laughs> I'm going to Europe to find myself, and apparently finding myself involves copious amounts of antibiotics and lubricant, uh, not necessarily in that order. So, uh, but uh, yeah, uh, you know, people, people, they, I'm going to go find myself, and that's like the siren song for like Euro trash guys to swarm over American girls or whatever. Like, I'm here in in Paris to find myself. It's like let me find you a futon so we can find you together. <laughs> anyway, so what do you I think? Found a disease. <laughs> I found a lingering sense of shame that will follow me from here to eternity. <laughs> oh, God. Um, did you ask me what I think? <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, well, it's interesting because usually when I would well, – the first thing that, that I want to say is like some sort of – doesn't sound right, but this sort of comfort or content with – who you are, where you are, and where you're going. But the words comfortable and content, I don't know if they necessarily play into what it means to find yourself. I'm not really sure. Comfort is a form of self-necrophilia that prepares you for uh, an easy death. (laughs) The search for comfort is something we all yearn for in some ways, but... um... We, you know, I think most people with any oomph in them get pretty restless when comfort continues, and so uh, I think that we we like comfort in so far as you know when you've done a hard day's manual work or you've been out doing heavy sports or something, it's really nice to rest afterwards, and um, so that that level of comfort we strive for. But comfort is the shadow cast by productive labors. Uh, people want that sense of comfort to to continue uh, without recognizing that that's never going to happen without the kind of mind-bending drugs that will not have you in a very good place other than as a case study in a Gabor Mate book. And so uh, this sort of find yourself. Um, there, there, I think people like to expose themselves to new environments partly to distract themselves from themselves. And um, I don't know. I think that you find yourself, at least for me, I have found myself most deeply in relationships as opposed to places. Yeah, I think there's this sense of absolutely finding yourself in relationships, but sometimes there's uh, the ability to lose yourself um, in the sense that, I mean, I was, I just got out of, I guess, my my first serious relationship. and Wait, you just got out? <laughs> so- Sounds like a wrecked situation. The jaws of life came. Next thing you know, my wallet was gone, but I was under a clear sky. My prison um, sentence ended. They let me out. <laughs> I chewed my way out of the trap known as a. No, what happened? It was a. It was a long, slow process. Um, I, I mean, in, in in college, I kind of uh, I had some you know, close relationships, but it wasn't until after. Um, my it was she was a friend and she is that's a friend in the sense that there was very platonic um no real sexual tension and for myself who was very you know inexperienced at the time i i expected you know with the first person that i was ever going to really invest in i thought i i you know i thought there was going to be some initial spark and but no uh, with with her and i we were totally just friends um and then yeah, it just it happened very organically, I guess. Um, but it, it kind of started off on weak legs, sort of, because I was very unsure. She she had um, several boyfriends, and she kind of coming into this relationship, she was like, "You're who I want. Um, I know it." Um, and for me, I was like, "I just had sex for the first time 
I don't know. I mean, I, right away I was kind of ready to get out there, but, um, you know, I remember sitting in her living room and she kind of gave me this ultimatum in, in the sense that she's like, okay, well, either we need to date or I need to stop getting this close to you because she was starting to feel things. So I remember yeah, really, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I was just like, ah. <laughs> I'm just sitting there kind of being like, ah, okay. You haven't, you haven't <laughs> talked about anything like her personality or anything. I mean, what was she like as a person? You said you were friends, right? So, yeah. Um, yeah, we were, I mean, we, I guess we still are. Um, we're good, good friends. Um, very funny. Uh, I don't know. I, I remember meeting her very early on and, uh, she was, you know, we were just joking lots and texting as you, I guess you do a friend. Um, and I remember she was getting a tattoo and our mutual friend who kind of introduced us, she was lying on the table and she, her friend was kind of rubbing her leg. She was getting her tattoo on her back and she kind of hinted that I should do the same or something. It was a very weird situation, but, um, I just, I don't know. I, I it was weird. I was uncomfortable by doing that, but I noticed I was sort of attracted to her, but I don't know. That was kind of a pointless story, but it, it, there was, I think no, no, it was, it was, it was a, a time where I, I had all these expectations on how I would meet someone. And, um, it really, I mean, we, we dated for a year and a half, which I know isn't that long, but, um, during that time we became very, um, yeah, I don't know. I feel like the bond was much stronger than had I just met a girl at a bar and we had some sexual chemistry right away. It kind of set the standard, like, you know, of course, every girl that I fall in love with, I'd love to be friends with first, which sounds obvious, but I think a lot of my friends, um, they don't really understand that. I think most, most of my friends who are in relationships either, you know, met them online or, you know, just at a bar. So yeah, you do realize you're helping the world see that I do, in fact, get to the point somewhat quickly. Um, <laughs> what was her childhood like? Mine? No, um, hers. Oh, hers. Um, okay, well, she has two, both of her parents are psychotherapists. Um, uh, her father was a priest and um, had, uh, uh, had three kids. The oldest was 17. And then he was one of, from what I understand, one of like the forefathers of psychotherapy at least um in on in toronto um so yeah she uh, he he um yeah he started going to these meetings and kind of leaving his family to explore this which was part of the church and then he met this young what, woman what do you mean, leaving his family what do you mean um well he had um her, yeah her father um he was a church in a small town but he started exploring psychotherapy and having to leave the family to come to the city which is where i guess the workshops were um and then he met a young woman um much younger and he fell in love with her and he ended up leaving his family for this woman who mm -hmm. is my ex's mother um and they were both therapists together and yeah she was a She's just a, an only child. She she does stay close with her um, her one stepsister, but some of the other siblings refuse to talk to her just based on her connection with their father. Well, um, it's not her fault, right? No, no, I know it's uh, that's. I think the youngest um, step, uh, the youngest daughter of his, keeps in touch with her, but yeah, they they don't really stay in touch. Um, 
as far as her mother goes, she has a very, she loves her father. Uh, I mean, she loves both of her parents, but her father in particular is really, um, yeah, her, her everything. And during the time we were dating, he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, um, which was huge. And she doesn't have a very good relationship with her mother at all. Um, her mother, I think is a bit of an alcoholic. I mean, it took a while for me to see that she would tell me about it and her mother seemed very lovely. But as I got to know them more, um, I could tell that something was off. Um, so, yeah. So why was she getting a tattoo? Um, it was, uh, it was her first tattoo and it was of a loon on her back. It was, okay, okay, dude, dude, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't ask if it was her first, and I didn't ask what it was. Oh, and why? Oh, why was she getting one? Um, there you go. Um, I I don't know. I, it was the loon was a connection to a, a friend of hers, um, a long time childhood friend. They both got it. It was a matching tattoo, um, and I think it it had something to do with her country life. Uh, I, I I guess I don't really really know. I mean, it's, it's really painful, right? Yeah. And uh, it's pretty permanent, right? At least until you get older, in which case it gets all saggy and weird, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what did her family think of her getting a tattoo? Um, I, I think they're pretty easygoing about it. Yeah, they. I think they, they liked it. <laughs> and what yeah, did you think of her getting a tattoo? Um, when she got it at the time, I really... I had no opinion. It would look nice. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it somehow fitted, uh, fit her personality. Um, I don't know. Was, and would you say she had a happy childhood? Um, yes, I think so. Uh, she had a lot of wonderful friends that she's been able to stay in touch with her entire life, like high school, public school friends, high school friends, um, yeah, I think she was a bit lonely, uh, just maybe being an only child. Uh, she definitely craved siblings. Um, but overall, I'd say, I'd say yes. She she really loves. She looks forward to going back home for the most part and seeing friends and being in her hometown. Um, so the fact that she was the result of an affair, and mm-hmm. that her half siblings don't speak to her. And her mother was an alcoholic. You don't feel that this had any sort of negative impact in her childhood? Um, well, yeah. Um, I, I guess, I think, well, I mean, she must have had some, but it really was her father. I mean, she really looks, I think her father definitely, it's hard to even imagine, like I, even knowing him as little as I do, I I can't even picture him doing that. And he's such a lighthearted, very fun. Doing what? Um, I think just playful with her. I, I know, know. you, dude, you're really hard to follow. <laughs> you can't understand him doing what? Um, oh, just leaving his, leaving a wife and three kids. Um, yeah, just, just absolutely abandoning them, abandoning them. Um, and having that sort of past. Now he's not religious at all, which really was his. Okay, so life. so look, you you've been to therapy for a number of years, right? Yes. Okay. I, I, okay. <laughs> I mean, 
I don't know what your therapist has been doing, and I'm certainly not a therapist. But <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna break it down to you at least as I see it, right? Please. All right. Religion plus priest therapist who meets woman, abandons his family, has affair with woman. Said woman is an alcoholic, right? Yeah. So he left his wife and children for an alcoholic. Do do, do you get that in your bones? Yeah. That is fucked up. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's one thing to go through a life crisis to learn something new and to leave long-term relationships for something better. I've done it. I get it. But to leave your wife and three children for an alcoholic is not progress. Or if it is progress, God help you. Yeah, it's tough to but, but, but why? why don't you get this? You've been in therapy for years. No, no, I, I guess... I, do you, I do. Are, you, are you covering up for someone? Does someone currently have like a Nerf gun to your kidney? I mean, what, <laughs> what is going on? No, no, no Nerf gun. Um, You're like someone who's got a PhD in physics who says stuff moves around. Don't get how or why, but it's cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I think maybe we were so removed from them that you know when i did meet the parents or I, or I would talk to them um yeah i guess it was it was hard to even take what she would say in versus what they were showing i mean from what i understand so they put on a good show right I of course so. he's a priest yeah. <laughs> of course he puts on a good show right yeah. the the mother in terms of her drinking um it seemed like that kind of kicked up once he was diagnosed with the Alzheimer's. I don't really know her entire past of drinking, but based on how she recounts it, she, yeah, she seems like her mom's always been kind of drinking, but it, it, I guess it does sound harsh to think about, yeah, I'm leaving this family for an alcoholic. I, I don't imagine she was an alcoholic her whole life, but. All right. Okay. Um, is there anything else that you want to chat about? Cause I, I feel like we're not quite having a conversation yet. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think for some reason it started off just on this idea of finding yourself. And I think a lot of my advice from... Do you know why you're interested in finding yourself? Um, yeah, I think it was more about what, what that even means. Uh, and yeah, trying to... I could tell you what it means, dude. You At least, you know, this is my first impression, so I can't claim to know you in any great detail, but I'm I'm pretty big on first impressions. <laughs> you you kind of live in a fog world, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And I think that the finding yourself question is interesting. And I think it's, you know, I, I'm always interested in, in why people, you know, they have an opportunity to, to speak on this program and you've waited a long time for that opportunity and you could have changed your question anywhere along the way. But this is the question that you want to ask, which you know, tells me a lot about you, I think. And again, this is just my opinion. I don't have any bead or knowledge of you in, in any obviously objective fashion. But when you listen back to this, you will be really surprised at the lack of center that you display in the conversation. And by center, I mean um, judgment. Mm. Uh, you're very easygoing, would you say? Am I? <laughs> uh, 
Uh, I don't, yeah, I guess. <laughs> yeah, oh, I guess. Well, you just confirmed it. <laughs> I don't want to agree with you or disagree with you, Steph. So I'm going to use the magic word, I guess, which gets yeah. me out of perjury. Right? But um, very easygoing, non-confrontational, right? Yes. Don't like to make people upset. Exactly, yeah. Right? And what do you stand for? Yeah. Am I am I off base here? I, again, I don't want to tell you about yourself. I'm just telling you what I think. Yeah, I think um, I think um, for some reason I'm I'm frozen. I mean, I'm usually pretty good at, uh, at articulating and 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 talking about how I feel. But it's, oh no, uh, you've been fantastically great at articulating. <laughs> you have been extraordinarily clear, right? And I'm again, I'm, I'm certainly not trying to be mean, right? But I, no, I want no, people I to. Get out of this conversation something that they want to need and haven't gotten yet and and that's you know this would be my suggestion to you so let's talk about you okay that's all right okay yeah okay so you have an adverse childhood experience of zero which is great yeah <laughs> I yeah i was lovely. looking through that i was like okay this is good this is good this is good, right? So no verbal abuse, uh, no hitting, no yelling, no suicidal family members, no drunks, no drugs, no neglect, no... Okay, so this is wonderful. It's great to hear. Great. Right. Um, uh, parents married? Yes, of course, because otherwise you'd have an ACE of something other than zero, right? Yeah. Yeah, they're, they are married. Um, I grew up... Um, my mother uh, did really all the work. Uh, I... I look at back at, on their marriage now, and I remember my mother telling me a lot how she she would say that sometimes she wish she wishes that she hadn't stayed with my father for us because I would often hear that um, if it wasn't if it wasn't wait, for your hang on hang on hang on yeah okay. I, mean, I know I know I'm not trying slow to slow down slow down sweet talking listener um, so how old were you when you first knew that your mother wanted to leave or had thoughts about leaving your dad? Um very young like five six she wouldn't she wouldn't say it as i want to leave your father she would say that if it wasn't for you guys i wouldn't be with your father which i realize is for some reason and she here. said this to you when you were five or six years old um yeah quite young i have an older sister she's um, no no she's no, no 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 okay. no 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 talk about your sister stay stay with me brother stay with me here with okay me, <laughs> what do you think of that um yeah of course that's fucking terrible um, and I, I have, I would, I would talk to her about it even being older and she'd be like, yeah, I guess that wasn't the greatest thing to say to you. But at the time she was doing all the work, um, she would often leave. Wait, wait, she was doing all the work. Hang on. She was taking care of you guys and working full time. Yep. Yep. She was. Uh, well, my, was my, doing? Sorry. I didn't hear that last part. What was your dad doing? Um, my dad had retired. Um, he used to be a real estate agent and then he, he would, he, he was pretty good at taking what? care. Wait, you were five and your dad was retired? He's yeah. not Billy Joe, is he? I mean, no, no, he, um, Anthony Quinn, uh, I don't know who else has had, how, how old was your dad when he retired? Um, just over 40, a little over 40. He retired uh, at 40. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Did he was like, just, made enough money to be comfortable for the rest of his life. No. No, he was a he was a real estate agent in the city, and then we moved out to the country, and he basically bought the house, um, but he just kind of stopped. Um, and even for that now, it's yeah. What it's, do you mean stop? 
he just he he kind of he had all of his clients in the city, and then when he came to the country, he had, well, they, he just they kind buy of, and sell things in the country too. I mean, you bought your house there; it had to come from someone, probably a real estate agent, right? So, this this sort of there were contracts in the city. Is like, well, I used to buy groceries in the city. Now I'm in the country. There's no choice but to starve to death because my grocery store is in the city, right? I mean, there's tons of stuff in the country that. Uh, mirrors what's in the city, and certainly real estate is is a booming business in the country. Uh, so that's not it, right? So w- why did he stop? Did he what did he do with his day? Um, yeah, I've tried to have conversations with this uh, with him. No, before. no, you were there. No, no, you oh. were there for years. Um, what did he do with his day? He would um, he would kind of t- we had a, a rather large property, um, so he would cut the grass <laughs> and be an all day event. Right. Um, he would take me to visit with, um, he had friends, uh, who owned restaurants. So we would kind of spend time there, but most of my memories with him are really just doing that. I mean, I, when I was at school, I, Wait, doing I don't, what? sorry. Sorry. You said most of my memories are of him doing that. I'm, I may have just missed something, but doing what? Oh, uh, either spending time with him at friends, restaurants or him outside doing some work. Uh, he enjoyed hunting, so he would do hunting as well. But, um, yeah, it was, it was pretty hard because my mom would leave for weeks at a time to have to work in the city and then come back until she was able to, uh, you know, uh, work a little more, cl- uh, close to the house. Well, hang on, hang on. I'm so sorry to be annoying, but no, if your mom, if your mom was doing everything, how is it possible that she's doing everything and spending weeks in the city? Cause while she was spending weeks in the city, which, by the way, unless she's working seven days a week, doesn't seem like she'd have to. If she's spending weeks in the city, then your dad was taking care of the house and the children, right? I mean, he could cook. Uh, I assume there'd be some cleaning going on, some laundry, you know, that kind of stuff, right? Yeah, but it would it would be minimal. Um, my mom would often come home and still have to cook and clean. Um, uh, yeah, <laughs> so he. So your dad wasn't uh, wasn't retired, right? I mean, um, he was unemployed. Right, yeah. He, that's how he would so label why, it. So why would you say retired? I don't quite understand that. I mean, if he's 40 and he doesn't have enough money to live on and he stops working, then he's unemployed, isn't he? Yeah. I guess, yeah. Do you see why there's so much fog here, right? Is that where we've been, where we've received an extraordinary amount of bullshit about our own history, it's kind of tough to have an identity, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And things seem very foggy <laughs> about this stuff, right? Your dad yeah. stopped working, so he was unemployed. And did he ever get another job or any other source of income? Uh, no, he didn't. He was he was receiving some, um, I guess, uh, un- like government checks, I suppose. Oh God! Yeah, Ew. I'm not even. I don't even really know. I mean, he. I think. Yeah, he would. He would have some checks come in, but it would definitely be uh, my mom bringing home the bacon, if you will. Right. And what was your relationship like with your dad? Um, it was good. He was. He's a. He's a scary guy. He's a. He's a. He's a. Um, I don't know. He's big. Big guy. <laughs> we. We would. Uh, um. I don't know. It's it's. I guess yeah. It's tough to talk about him. He was. He. Well, you just yeah. told me some very contradictory things, right? Yeah. It's about the most five second contradictory conversation I've probably ever had on the show, <laughs> right? 
which isn't funny, which is yeah. that uh, it, it, it was good. He was scary. Right. Ha ha. Right. Right. So what was scary about him? Um, yeah, we, I would, I would rarely get, um, uh, I think it was his, oh fuck. I'm, I'm, I'm obviously having a hard time communicating about it. Um, you're being very clear and doing a great job. Just keep going. Yeah, he he was oh, fuck man. Um, yeah, he was he was scary in the sense that um, uh, he was. <laughs> I don't fucking know. Um, just a. Uh, well, did he yell? Uh, did he call you yes, names? Yeah, he was. He was very. Uh, he he could um, get angry very quickly. Um, uh, usually I, I'd constantly be turning to my, my mom, um, for really anything, whether it was to ask to go to permission, like permission to really do anything. Um, yeah, he was, he was tough. He, more so on my sister. It even felt like, well, no, no, hang on, hang on. We got to unravel this. We got to unravel this again. You're, you're really racing past the graveyard here. Right. But yeah. Yeah. So Dan, when you say that, he would yell yeah, and you would go and have to ask your mom for things. Was that because when you asked your dad, if you could do something, he would yell? Um, well, one, he, he would usually say no. Um, but it's, it's weird. When I look back on my relationship with my dad, I, we, we didn't really communicate at all. It feels like, I mean, even now as I'm older, we don't really communicate. I mean, when we do, it seems very pleasant and, and nice, but for the most part, I'm on the phone catching up with my mom and then I hang up same with same with my sister again staying back on me but that's on both of us um and what's what's hard to talk about is uh, my entire childhood like yes he would he would get angry very quickly he would um you know sometimes uh you know hit us um but it's weird because in other times I I remember him as a, a very happy person i mean even now as you know since i've been out of the house for many years he's very kind and nice and i don't see him get angry or anything like that um and and how would he hit you what would he do uh it would usually be i think this is when i think of scary i mean i would start you know if i did something he would call me over very quietly just and just stare at me and he would ask me something and then i would just get a slap across the face um, I, you know, maybe one time I remember getting threatened by a, a belt, but you know, never more than one slap. I don't think, but it, well, it's, it's illegal, right? Yeah. Yeah. Just, just in case you were wondering, and this is because you'd mentioned Canada, but it's uh, illegal to hit children in the face. It's yeah. uh, it's criminal behavior. Yeah. I, I know he, um, he had a very, um, I know he would talk about his dad and his dad was much harder on him. I know that doesn't give him any right to do that to us, but I think that's from my understanding, that's kind of his background with that. He, his, his father would be much, much harder on him and his siblings. Do you have any idea why he stopped working? I've had, I've tried to have conversations with him about it. It's very uncomfortable um, to even try it. Uh, 
Can no, I, I know, but I mean, so you can tell me that you haven't got the information from him. I'm just curious what yeah. your thoughts are. Um, I, you know what? I really, really don't know. Um, I feel like he was very driven for his whole life, at least in the real estate game. And then he just kind of, yeah, even my, even when I speak to my mom, who I can have really great conversations with it, even she has a hard time, at least whether she knows it or not, she at least comes off as she has no idea. Um, and did yeah. he seem, uh, depressed or, or was there anything like that? Or was he just like happy to not work? I think he was, yeah, I think he was happy to not work. He had a, a farm, uh, I mean, a, a hunting camp far out of the city. So he would often do that with friends. He enjoyed doing that. Um, or going into hunting. Yeah. Yeah. He would, he would, um, so he had some expensive hobbies, but no job. Yeah, he he owned this. Um, he calls it the farm, but it's it was a hunting camp basically, and that to this day still costs the money. My, my mom's had to put on a couple mortgages to to keep that. Yeah, and she talks about you know we need to sell it, we need to sell it, but um, yeah, yeah, he's he's just kind of doesn't really respond to it, and now he's quite ill that he can't even use it, so it's just mm. there for his friends, I guess. Right. All right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's, uh, and did your father, when he would get angry, would he call you names or would it just be sort of loud? No, no names. Um, just loud. <laughs> yeah. Loud. And was he intimidating towards your mother as well that you know of? Um, no, no, not really to her. Uh, she, she definitely stood her ground. I have no memories of her, of him ever hitting her, even threatening to hit her. Um, if anything, a memory between their confrontations would be like her calling him an asshole. Like that'd be an extreme thing. And then he would really, that would hurt him a lot, you know, but no, I, I don't feel like he was very intimidating to a lot of people that didn't know him, but to my mother, um, no. Right. So if we've got to revise your adverse childhood experience score, right? Um, I guess which part? Well, physical abuse, non-spanking, that's being hit, not in a spanking manner. I mean, that's the ACE, right? So it's kind of mainstream. So you weren't spanked, but you were hit in the face from time to time. Yeah. yeah and right. verbal abuse and threats, I don't know. I mean, yelling, verbal intimidation, Again, I'm certainly no expert on this, but it's it not zero, right? Right, yeah. And, I mean, what's really tragic is the degree to which your father's behavior was nothing that you could internalize with the goal of achieving success in your life, right? Yeah, oh, it, it's that alone has had a huge weight. I, I've uh, I've achieved quite a level of success in my career and what I'm going for, um, especially at the age I'm at. And I, um, I do feel quite driven in that, but sometimes I'll have moments where I just am paralyzed and I'll do nothing. I'll just waste. And I, I'm so hard on myself about it, but it really is an absolute waste sometimes, like whether it be sleeping in, but then I, I feel like I do make up for it in in terms of actual production, but well, and, and not just the work, but I mean, I consider it extremely irresponsible to get married, to have two children, and then to stop working. Yeah. 
I mean, if you want to not work, then, you know, go be a hippie somewhere in a commune. And I don't know, they probably work pretty hard. But, you know, once you have kids, uh, you don't have to make money. I mean, he could have been a stay-at-home house husband and he could have run the household or whatever, right? But you don't really have an honorable choice called, okay, now we've had the kids, I'm quitting. And I'm not going to work that much around the house. Yeah. That's that's a significant dick move, in my opinion. And why do you think your mother stayed? For uh, for us, I guess. Uh, a lot of my friends at the time, uh, being very young, even like in kindergarten, a lot of my friends' parents were getting divorced and... Mm. Uh, I think they would they would come over a lot. You know, I, I remember. Is this kind of eighties, nineties kind of thing? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Oh, uh, the plague of divorce that ran through yeah. society at that time. Right, right. Yeah, early nineties. Uh, but it was a functional yeah, a divorce, right? I mean, your parents. I'm sorry, sorry, sorry to interrupt, Dan, but it was sort of a no, weird kind of in how in home divorce, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I they weren't so. really a married couple. She's gone for weeks at a time. He's off. Uh, hunting, uh, she wants to not be there. I would imagine at some point their sex life probably took, well, something of a hit. Uh, and um, it was kind of like an in-home divorce in a, in a way. I'm just telling you what I think. Again, you were there, so you know your mm-hmm. your perspective rules mine infinitely higher, but that's sort of the impression that I get. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to think of it like that. Um... I mean, but, did they go out for dinner? Did they were they affectionate with each other? Did they enjoy each other's company at all? I mean, yeah, they were uh, they were very pleasant with each other. That's one way. Uh, ro- you know, in terms of romanticism, I, I don't recall my father really taking my mother out um, or them really going out at all. Like, yeah, yeah, um, my mom would usually just be exhausted, and she would spend time with us right away. Any any kind of um, spare time she had she would immediately be with my sister and I right right but it's not it doesn't sound like much of a love marriage no no um I mean it couldn't uh, be if she resents him the resentment is like yeah the, uh, it's the wet finger on the again like they, they, they definitely romance, had right? many moments of being very lovey in the sense that they'd be you know but you're right. It feels very foggy. Right. So, I mean, I, I think that it's, you know, in terms of finding yourself, I, you know, I would certainly argue that it's a, it's a fairly important thing to do to try and um, figure this stuff out in terms of your history. You know, what's your template for uh, a relationship? What is your template for masculinity? Uh, what is your template for parenthood? Uh, because it has a huge impact, of course, on how we view relationships. I mean, the first relationship that we see, which we're going to emulate as adults, is our parents' relationship, right? Yeah. I've had a, had a really uh, hard time kind of grappling with the idea of masculinity and, and what it means to be a man. Um, even coming out of my relationship, uh, this idea of needing to sleep with a whole bunch of women before I could ever possibly settle down and really struggling with my ex even sleeping with a larger number than I had. Um, yeah, that was something that really got to me, even now that we've been broken up for a while. Um, well, look, if you and if you don't want the relationship your parents want, 
I mean, look, <laughs> it's, it's sort of like if you don't want to speak the language your parents speak, you've got some work to do, right? If you do want to speak the language your parents speak, well, you're fine, right? I mean, I, I grew up speaking English, and I speak English, right? And but, but if I was like, I hate English, or I don't want to speak English, I'm going to learn Japanese, I've got some work to do. And through that, I'm actually going to learn a lot more about language than if I simply use my native tongue. And so if you don't want what your parents had, then there can be nothing automatic about your relationships, because the automatic thing is to speak parent, right? And if you don't want what your parents had, you really have to unpack their marriage. You have to unpack what went wrong. And you can do that, hopefully, with their participation, if they're willing to be open to frank. But you don't need their participation fundamentally to understand things. Um, but if you're going to navigate away from the home village, so to speak, in terms of the template your parents gave you, you've got to get really good with a map and a compass, right? Yeah. And that means, unfortunately, being <laughs> being judgmental. It doesn't mean hating them and it doesn't mean, you know, whatever, right? But but it does mean that you have to judge the, the decisions that they made. And when you say, well, how do you find yourself? You find yourself, Dan, in your judgments, in your evaluations, in your view of people. Now, we don't want our evaluations to be bigoted or prejudicial or whatever, right? But we do want to have judgments. You know, there's that old thing, judge not lest ye be judged. And someone is like, yep, I will judge. <laughs> I'm prepared to be judged. I'm fine with that, right? And um, it is in our judgments that we gain our identity, which is why philosophy is so powerful in terms of identity, because philosophy gives us the objective tools to make judgments that we know are not mere what are called reaction formations or defenses or prejudice uh, or bigotry or anything like that. But philosophy gives us the tools to make judgments that stand the test of reason and evidence because they're derived from reason and evidence. And to me, a better word is, I don't know if you, <laughs> this word is even in vogue anymore, but there's a great word called judicious. I don't know, is that still kicked around at all? Uh uh, probably not. Well, probably not. Okay, <laughs> but it's a great word. It, it, like discrimination is considered to be a bad word. Discriminatory, you know, or, or discriminating. I'm a discriminating buyer. That's considered to be slightly snooty, but a, a, a positive word. And judgmental has become this this bad word, you know. And it's sort of the emotional equivalent of saying so and so is bashing someone, <laughs> you know, which is just this appeal to emotion and white knighting and all that. But judicious, I think, is a much better word than judgmental because it hasn't been polluted by leftist relativism and so on. Judicious, I think, has to do with a, a fine judgment and a positive judgment and a rational judgment and self-protecting. A judicious use of resources is, you know, like if you have seed crop that you, you know, you, you can eat some of your grain, but you've got to keep some for next spring's planting, you have a judicious use of your resources so that you don't run out. A judicious use of your energy as a marathon runner will get you from beginning to end without fainting or, or anything like that. So it's a carefully measured and reasoned marshalling and expenditure of resources. And I think that we do have to judge 
And in some ways, you know, we can, I think, judge actions rather than persons. Although to what degree a person exists to others independent of their actions, I think is a, an interesting question. The answer is probably not much at all because we can't inhabit each other's minds. So, you know, I can sort of judge my mother's actions and I can say, well, but am I judging my mother? It's like, but I only know my mother through her actions. I, I, I don't have a mind meld with her, probably for the best. But um, to judge your parents' actions and say, you know, positive or negative, and tragically, we have to, you know, philosophy demands that we judge actions according to ideal standards. And that doesn't mean that anyone can ever perfectly achieve those ideal standards. I can't, you can't, your parents couldn't, my parents, nobody, nobody can. But that doesn't mean that we should not judge by those perfect standards. So if you're drinking water, the water is not going to be 100% pure. And to say, I'm not going to drink water until it's 100% pure just means dying of thirst, right? So, uh, but, but nonetheless, <laughs> there's still a difference between Evian and seawater, right? <laughs> I mean, Evian is not pure, but you can drink it. Uh, seawater, you can't uh, drink it, right? It's too minerally, too salty. So we, we, we judge water relative to its purity, but we don't require water to be pure in order to judge it. And so we do have to judge our own actions and uh, our parents and our friends and our culture, our society and, 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 and so on, our relatives, relative to ideal standards. And uh, yeah, nobody's perfect, but that doesn't mean there's no difference between John Galt and Charles Manson, right? I mean, so uh, in the judgment, in our relationship to ideal standards, Dan, is where we find our identity because ideal standards give us structure. And a bridge doesn't have to be perfect, but it does have to stay up. And we do want an engineer who can judge accurately whether a proposed bridge will stand. And we have a bridge in our life called the future, our future selves, the rest of our lives. And we need the principles which an engineer would use to figure out if a bridge will stand. We need those principles so that we can build a bridge to our future that will be where we live in the future, that will stand. We cannot have identity without certainty. The degree to which we are not certain of things is the degree to which we lack shape, form, purpose, courage, identity, being, personality. And philosophy gives us these wonderful tools by which we can become certain of things. And when you listen back to this, Dan, as I hope you will, when I talk about the fogginess, it's a lack of judgment. And because you lack judgment, and I, what I mean by that, and you're successful, so I'm not trying to define you in any no, no, massive no. way. I'm just talking about with regards to particular values, right? I mean, <laughs> I'm not trying to say you lack judgment of any kind. I'm just saying, in my opinion, relative to particular values, you, you, um, the judgment is dangerous for you because there were things in your family that you didn't like but weren't allowed to judge negatively because your dad was scary and your mom was who she was. And so because you are afraid of certain kinds of 
judgments about maybe ethics or functionality or whatever, you are probably going to end up continually drawn towards people who also lack judgment, right? So the, the girl that you dated had a story about her life that did not match, in my opinion, the facts of her life, mm. right? And when I heard the facts of her life, I'm like, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> whoa, <laughs> right? And so what that means is that she also lacks judgment in these particular principles, of, of functionality, perhaps of, of ethics. I mean, I, I think that your father's lack of functionality, given that he'd been cited to become a father, was really kind of close to, if not in the realm of ethics. It's one thing to be non-functional if it's just you, but when you have a wife and kids, it's mm, kind of a different matter, right? Right. And so, so that's sort of my concern around sort of finding yourself. I think that you will find yourself through... Philosophy. I, I think philosophy is the gateway through which we find ourselves because we find ourselves fundamentally through moral certainty. Through moral certainty, we gain connection. Because the problem, of course, with the relationships where people are foggy about their history is honesty becomes something that's not even really possible. And not because people are trying to lie. It's because they don't even know there is any falsehood. Right. So, I mean, if, if you were, if I were, I mean, imagine if I had met this girl and I was single and she was single and, you know, she was telling me, you know, she had a, a great childhood and a great life. And her dad was a priest who abandoned his family to marry her mother, who's kind of an alcoholic. I, you know, the first thing I'd say is, whoa, <laughs> whoa, are you ever lost at sea and think you're on solid ground? Right. But you can't do that. Or, and I don't think you would even say that that was something that was missing. If that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> right? And, and I think that's where the finding yourself is a challenge. Um, philosophy does give us that clarity, that curiosity, and those standards. And you also notice, like, I mean, I'm not, you know, I've repeatedly, as, as I do in these conversations, I'm really desperate to not tell you what your life is or who you are or anything like that. I was telling you what I think, and I'm continually telling you I don't. This is your 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 perspective trumps mine because you were there, and so I'm not bullying you or dominating you or telling you, well, damn, this is the way your life is, and you don't know shit. Like, no, I'm just telling not. you my thoughts, right? Yeah. No, so it's... it doesn't have to be an aggressive thing at all, but I would say that uh, skepticism, uh, curiosity, and principles—you know—when you started talking about your girlfriend, I was like, this can't be an ACE of zero, mm -hmm. and. I think if we, you know, if we were to continue, I don't think we need to, but if we were, we'd probably find out more. But there was a significant amount of dysfunction in your household growing up. And I don't get the sense that it's clear for you. And therefore, you're going to be drawn to other people who also don't know about their own dysfunction, which means the dysfunction is likely going to dominate the relationship and not allow deep roots to take hold. Yeah, especially, it definitely felt like there was an attachment between us, but um, attachment in the unhealthy sense as opposed to some deep rooted connection because yeah, we, maybe we did have a hard time communicating, especially about our past and our family. It would often just get ignored or we weren't able to actually 
articulated. Right, right. Yeah. So, yeah, that would be my suggestion. You know, I've got this book, Real-Time Relationships, which you can get free at freedomainradio.com slash free, a book on ethics called Universally Preferable Behavior, a Rational Proof of Secular Ethics. Um, one that you might want to start with is the first one I wrote, um, uh, On Truth, the Tyranny of Illusion, which is pretty short and I think gives some good analogies and arguments for these kinds of judgments. And I think that uh, it is in the division between things that we have identity, right? I mean, we know a stream is a stream and not an ocean because it's bounded by non-stream, <laughs> right, on either side, land. And we know where the shore is because it's where the land dips into the water. And we know where a country is because of imaginary lines. We know where I end and you begin because it's the space between us. It is in division that we gain any kind of identity and it is in the judgment that we gain our identities as individuals so i hope that helps and and you know i certainly wish uh, i hope that you will sort of mull this over and, and find some utility in it yeah it'll be um i think it'll be really useful even to hear me talking about it uh, especially off the top of the conversation and um yeah, I think despite me doing well in, you know, my chosen field, it, there's definitely this huge sense of being lost, which is why I think I even was talking about this idea of finding yourself and whatever, going on trips, which I've done and, whatever, you know, friends giving me advice to either go on trips or to sleep with women as, as, as some sort of um, means to cope Um but I, I realize it's something much deeper rooted and um, really just starting from, uh, yeah, my, what do I, my core values I think I'm even struggling with. Yes, and I get that. And we don't want to invent core values any more than a scientist wants to invent physics. You want to discover them, the objective values that you can hold. And we did just put a video out called What is Masculinity? And uh, it's actually one of the few videos where it's a scratch and sniff. And, uh, you know, obviously there's a fair amount of jock itch and gym shorts involved in that kind of stuff. But uh, hopefully that will be of value to you. Anyway, we're going to do one more call. But thanks so much, Dan. It was a great, great chat. And do drop us a line. Let us know how it goes, all right? Cool. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. All right. Up next is John. John wrote in and said, as a single father of a daughter, I wonder whether I should pursue looking for a serious romantic relationship. Two doubts always creep up when I think about it. First, while I know how to date, I have no clue how to morally filter my daughter's insight into my dating life. Examples. If I go on a date, should she know she's being babysat that evening for that, or just not mention the reason? If a lady hits it off to me, when or how do I introduce them to my daughter? Second, what type of woman like being pursued by a single father? That worries me. In all but a few cases, in my social web, the men who pursue single mothers are immature, jerks, aggressive, possessive, drunkards, or drug addicts. Does a single father have any chance of finding a good girl when the single mothers in my extended social web seem to only find jerks? My daughter's mother was such a bad experience and bane all these years that I have PTSD about finding another like her. Gosh, yeah, I can imagine. I'm sorry, what was your name again? Uh, John. 
Nice to meet you, John. Nice to meet you. So, I don't mean to reawaken your trauma, but uh, can you give me the brief overview of what happened with your ex? Um, I kind of rushed into things too fast. I was in high school, uh, and I missed all the warning signs. Uh, like, when I started hanging out with her, uh, within a few days, five of my teachers individually brought me into their offices and were like, John, we would really recommend you'd stay away from that girl. Oh. Uh, what did your parents say? Uh, my mother did not approve at all. Uh, I, she could tell, she could sense something was up far before I could. How 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 pretty was this girl exactly? Uh, well bosomed. Oh, you got dick napped. Okay, got it. <laughs> got it. Okay. Right. So your your penis was like eggs, <laughs> eggs with big feet bags. So eggs, and you're like, I don't think she's that nice a person. It's like I don't care. She has eggs <laughs> and good fertility signs. So. Uh, we're going to shut down the higher frontal neocortex and we're going to go full monkey brain. Is that probably kind of what happened? Uh, yes. Right. And what were the signs that the girl was, that the other people were reading that the woman was uh, trouble? Um, she was kind of the queen of gossip at the school. Um, que- sorry, did you say queen of goths? Gossip. Oh, gossip. Okay, sorry. Got it. Um, suffered had a history of depression uh, and things of the like and her other than the gossip thing uh, she, she had a history of depression a uh, history of lying a lot um, wasn't that well behaved in school didn't obey the dress policy right and h- how long were you together for uh, we were together for uh, two years before we separated. Uh, we were together for six months, uh, then pregnancy. Sorry to interrupt. How did the pregnancy come about? Uh, I was at a university. It was my birthday. Go on. Uh do I really need to go into any more details? Yeah, you kind of do, because uh, it's not that hard to prevent pregnancy, right? Oh, um, we did use two different types of birth control, but uh, neither seemed to have worked. Wait, so was it like condom plus IUD, uh, or? Uh, yes, it was uh, condom plus, what was it? Yeah, an IUD, or whatever the acronym is. And did the condom break, or what happened? Uh, there was no visible issues with it from the packaging. Now, I'm going to ask you a question that I has probably crossed your mind, but I just want to satisfy my own thought processes. I hope you won't take offense. Do you know what that question's going to be? Uh, yes. What's that? Uh, do I think she planned it? Well, um, she can't plan for there to, like, she can't, I mean, she put a hole in the condom or something like that and didn't have her 
IUD, and I keep thinking of IED, which is, you know, not far off in some ways, but... Um, uh, so okay, let, that's one one question. That's not the, that was my second question, which we can deal with first. Um, do you think that she wanted to get pregnant? Um, honestly, looking back at it, uh, uh, her dream uh, when she was a teenager was to be a parent, like the whole idyllic uh, husband that goes to work is a good husband and father and her be the stay-at-home wife. And that, that's always been my vision. So I, I think maybe we weren't as careful as we should have been. No, you were pretty careful, right? I mean, I, uh, I, IUD plus, uh, that's an interuterine device. It's like a Y-shaped thing that's supposed to, I think, what, prevent the sperm from hitting the egg or the egg from implanting or something like that. So it sounds like you were pretty careful. Uh, who disposed yeah. of the condom? Uh, I, I did. Okay, so she couldn't have sperm-jacked you, right? <laughs> no. Um, with uh, young individuals that are not sexually experienced, uh, there is a high failure rate, like put on the condom slightly wrong or all that stuff. Uh, I have read studies that show that there's a high failure rate for inexperienced users. Inexperienced users of condoms? Yeah. Right. But condom plus... IUD, Mike, if you can sort of look out that, it's got to be like one in a thousand, one in 10,000, I would imagine. It seems like extraordinarily unlikely. But anyway, okay, that's, that's, the, that's the way it went, and that's what happened. Um, there, there is one other possibility, and I, I hesitate to mention it, but I feel I need to sort of dot my I's and cross my T's, which is that uh, the pregnancy occurred from uh, another man. In other words, uh, your birth control worked, but she may have uh, had a. Oh, the, the, there's a technical possibility, which I feel obliged to mention, that um, the pregnancy occurred from another man. Um, that that was a thought that worried other people, but uh, uh, during the period that she did get pregnant, nobody else was around her, yada, yada. Okay. I'll uh, just, I just wanted to mention it. Because if you've got two forms of birth control, but she gets pregnant, again, my thought is the possibility that it was somebody else's, uh, somebody else's swimmers that managed to get one past the goalie. But, um, uh, of course, uh, I bow to your uh, judgment and experience. It's just a thought that uh, crossed my mind. All right. So... Um, you were sick together six months when she got pregnant, right? Yeah. And did you get married? Uh, I wanted to, but she never did. Huh. And what were the arrangements supposed to be? Were you supposed to live together? Were you going to give up college or what was going to happen? Uh, well, so, uh, we got pregnant in my first year. Uh, then we moved in together, uh, for my while well, I was in my second year, uh, we broke up at the end of my second year uh, during exams. Wait, uh, that was uh, how old was the baby at that point? Uh, exams were in April. Uh, my daughter's birthday is in July, so that's nine months old. And what was going on that you broke up? Um. She 
she she kind of felt a, she wanted to be like a regular 19-year-old and go to bars, drink, and the like. Wait, sorry, didn't she want to be a mom and have the dad and, like, I don't get how that fits in with the bar scene. Uh, the grass stars greener at the other uh, on the other side. Oh, she probably missed the male attention, right? Yes. Okay, so she wanted to. She had a, a kid of nine months of age, but she wanted like to go out to bars and get hit on by guys. Is that right? Uh, basically, yes, for all intents and purposes. I'm so sorry. Gosh, what a what a disaster. And so you broke up then. In your second year, you said around exam time. And, and what happened after that? Uh, so during the summer between my second and third year, uh, we kind of had 50-50 uh, time. I'd have my daughter for a week. She'd have her for a few days uh, or a bit extra. Uh, then around, was, uh, sorry, was she was she putting this uh, this boob tent to good use? I mean, was she breastfeeding? I mean, how was she not able? Like, how did that work? Did she pump or uh, uh, formula? Formula was she not able to breastfeed or? Uh, or she... Yeah, yes. Early on in the pregnancy, uh, there was a bit of there were a few issues with that. Uh, I. Not really that relevant. All right. So was she like unable to breastfeed for medical reasons? Uh, yes. All right. Okay. All right. Um, okay. So then what happened? Uh, so starting in the fall of my third year, uh, she had uh, informally given me full custody, uh, wanting to see her daughter, she said, at most, she expected every other week on the weekends. Uh, so I did most of my fall semester. And then during one weekend that she had, she refused to give her back or let me see her. So that was, yeah, a pretty bad time. Uh, right. So from... The, my winter semester of my third year to the winter, of, no, fall of my fourth year. Uh, I only got to see my daughter one, about once every month or two if I was lucky. Right. That's terrible. But sorry, I'm, I'm sorry, I just missed something there. So you had uh, informal full custody of your daughter. I'm sorry to, to, to ask you to repeat this, but, but how, how long was that for? Uh, this was for, let's say, three, four months during my fall semester. And what was she doing? Being unemployed, living with her mother. But why wasn't she able to take care of her daughter? Uh, she didn't want to. Okay. All right. Uh, All right. Is that because she wanted to, again, go out and have yeah. fun? Uh, so then, in the winter of my fourth, in the I'm sorry, the fall of my fourth year of university, um, we did go to court. We did have a 
custody order set up uh, where oh, I had... She wanted to get more involved. She wanted to get more involved in... No, no. Uh, so in the winter of my third year, uh, she wouldn't give her back. Uh, so I had to wow. take her to court to get visitation rights. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. That's that's very very hard. So so that so I got the visitation rights in my fa- fall semester of you know in my fourth year fall semester, uh, and it was every other weekend and the alternate Monday because I wanted to be a constant in my daughter's life. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I graduated in the summer of 2013 and uh, starting in late 2013 uh, I started having Naomi say every uh, not every say for a week at a time or for a week and a half at a time and by the spring of 2014 uh, my daughter's mother had rendered custody and I contacted a lawyer. We got the papers all signed up. She signed up and I got full custody. Wow. Wow. What a roller coaster, man, man alive. I can, I can get the PTSD. God, I'm so sorry. What, what a mess. I mean, good for you, man, toughing it out and, and sticking with it. And you know, your daughter is very lucky. It sounds like to have you as a father and hats off, medals pinned. Sounds to me like a fantastic uh, job in a crazy difficult situation. Thanks. And um, so now that is um, the question. Sorry, and I just wanted to sort of get that background. So is is your ex out of your life now? Or, I mean, I guess any time something could happen, but is, is she sort of out of your life for the foreseeable future? Uh, it, it varies a lot. So say in the fall of last year, 2014, uh, she moved out to, and that has lasted for a month. Then she moved back. Uh, oh, yeah, then- yeah. Uh, because she missed her daughter, but then went, say, three, four weeks without seeing her, then saw her an average of once every two weeks, uh, then said she wanted to see her at least once a week, canceled half the visitations. Uh, sometimes we'll go two, three weeks without contacting her daughter. This last week, though... We saw her four times, so it's up and down and left and right. Yeah, and wildly unpredictable, of course. Yeah. Right. Right, okay. And what are your feelings towards your ex at the moment? Uh, what's the antonym of am- amiable? Hostile? Yeah. Uh... Yes. Uh, Not in front of my daughter, but just in everything else, uh, I don't get along with her well. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, 
I know I'm only getting one side, but nonetheless, uh, he sounds like a pretty horrible mom or non-mom, as the case may be. And not not bright, not bright. So, um, and so thanks thanks for the background. The the question now, sort of around single dad dating. Uh, yeah. So, um, I do feel talking to my to myself, talking to other people that I am ready to start dating. Uh, but uh, I do know for my daughter, I have a responsibility to show her how a man should treat women. So I don't want to, her to get a bad idea of how men treat women with a view of how she would have of a potential dating life of mine. Right. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Sorry, let me let me hold my thoughts. Uh, please go on. Uh, I'm good. Okay. Well, I mean, it's interesting because you know I've done a bunch of stuff on single moms, and um, you know I I sympathize. Uh, you you really chose the wrong woman, right? Against significant advice, right? Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Can you can you help me understand? Why you didn't listen to the people who were trying to save you from this? Uh, at that time, I may. At that time, I really believed that people were innately good. So when I heard that, uh, the warning comments, uh, I thought too much about the potential positives than the negatives. No, I don't. I'm sorry. <laughs> I have to tell you, I, I, I got a call not quite believable on that one. And I, I, I could be completely wrong, right? You could be speaking God's honest truth to me, and I could just be overly cynical. But, but I'll sort of tell you why. Because generally, we, when we're young, we inherit the values of the people who raised us. And your mother herself was saying, don't do it, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I got to tell you, I don't know where you'd get some innate sense of virtue if your mom believes in dysfunction and danger and is telling you don't do it. Where on earth would you be pulling this sense of innate human virtue out of? I, I just I can't see how that – I can't square that circle. Uh, well, what it is is that in my life, uh, I've had so many people – in my life that were so kind to me up to that point. Like I had, like, yes, I've, I've met dysfunctional people. Everybody has a bit of a dysfunction. Uh, but up to that point, uh, I had basically never been exposed to anybody that was overwhelmingly dysfunctional. So there weren't kids in school who were bullied. I mean, are you from the future? <laughs> it's that whole question from Seinfeld. I mean, are you, are you saying that no I extended family members were molested? No, no, hang on, hang on. But you knew they existed, right? I mean, I stay away from yeah, bears too. That doesn't mean I go and give them a hug, right? Uh, like I knew they existed. It's just that, say, for the dysfunctional people in my family, my mom kept them at arm's length. Uh, but you, but you knew that there were dysfunctional people in your family, right? Uh, yeah, but just never firsthand knowledge. 
What, you'd never met them? Uh, I had met them, but the second they started showing any loony signs or any warning signs, it was like, this is no longer coming over for dinner. Oh, okay, so your mom would cut off people who were dysfunctional. Yeah. So you had a model called, if people are dysfunctional, stay away from them. So I don't get how you <laughs> somehow transform that into there are no bad people in the world. I mean, your mom was regularly cutting bad people out of your life. Uh, and, do you, yeah, and can I tell so you, can I tell you, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I, I, I want to tell you first why I'm asking you this. Yeah. Because this is what an, a, a, an intelligent and self-aware woman is going to ask you. And the moment she sniffs a lack of self-knowledge, she's going to hit the road. So this is why I'm asking you these questions. I'm pretending we're dating. Or not dating, we're, we're, we're sort of chatting for the first time, right? Okay. And, and if you – right, and, and an intelligent and self-aware woman is going to ask, I would imagine, similar questions to what I'm asking. And right now, your story does not make, make a lot of sense, I hate to tell you, but it really doesn't. Because your mom is like, there are bears in the woods, son. Here, look, there's a bear. Now, those bears are really dangerous. We don't go to the bears. We keep the bears away, particularly from the children. Those bears are really... Here's another picture of a bear. Now, here's a bear pelt. Here's what bears smell like. And and here's oh. what a bear fart smells like. Come on, Dad, show them. Oh, right? And you're like, bears. And then you're like, well, I just went up and hugged the bear because I didn't know bears were dangerous. Uh yeah, but it's kind of that latter bit you're like, I never got the whole, this is how bears look like speech. I just never saw bears. No, but you saw, I get, I get that, but you saw her, you saw your mother continually ejecting dysfunctional people from your family. Yes. So your model is stay away from dysfunctional people. Yes. And listen, your, your mom is obviously pretty strict with her boundaries because there's a lot of people who say you should not keep dysfunctional family members at bay. I believe a few of them may have commented on this show over the years about my <laughs> arguments that it may be a reasonably decent thing to do to keep dysfunctional family members at a distance. So your mom was like defooing people who were dysfunctional and then you say, well, I thought everyone was nice and I didn't know that there were dysfunctional people. Yeah. So this doesn't hang together, right? And I, I, I'm, not tell, I'm not saying that you're telling me anything that is false, right? I'm, I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that, like, if, if I was a woman and I thought you were, like, the sexiest thing since, I don't know, um, deep dish uh, bacon that does a lot of sit-ups, and then, then I would be like, okay, well, what's this, you know, this guy's obviously had a disaster or two in his history. What has he learned? Because if you haven't learned a huge amount about your disastrous, then it's disastrous to date you. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I have learned okay. to take things slower, to uh, nope. listen to nope. other people. No, no, no. Listen, dude, I'm telling you, you're driving the good women away with this lack of knowledge. And I, I just I, – I want – I, I want your balls to get a workout. So I'm trying to help you here, all right? Really am. Okay. Really am. But if you had taken things slower with your ex, all that would happen is your daughter would be a little younger. <laughs> That's not exactly the same as avoiding. I would really like the Titanic to sink slightly slower. It's like, no, that's not the same as avoiding the iceberg, right? 
It's not yeah. taking things slower. The question is still, why didn't you listen? You can't. I mean, the story you've got about, you know, I just didn't know there were dysfunctional people when you're, you know, it's, it's like your mom's continually throwing people over the side of the boat and you said, I didn't know there was such a thing as stowaways. It's like, well, what? <laughs> right? <laughs> so you get where I'm going with this, right? Because a woman is going to want to know that you have a clear enough knowledge of the mess behind you that it's never going to happen again. Yes. And from what you're telling me, you don't have that yet. And that's going to be a bigger impediment to you dating because you say you're kind of jumpy, right? Which I totally get. But the reason you remain jumpy is because you don't have, I think, in my opinion, it's just my opinion, it's your life, so you're the final judge, obviously. But in my opinion, you don't have a clear view of how you ended up where you are. And this, you know, I just believed that the whole world was sunshine, lollipops, and rainbow ponies. Nah, that's not. I don't think that people are going to believe that. It, it's a kind of way of praising yourself. Like I was, and it's also a way of, of criticizing your ex, right? Like, like I was just so nice and thought everyone was so wonderful. That's what a great guy I was. And bam, she took advantage of that. And you know what I mean, right? Yes. Now, in my opinion, I can't prove it. It's just a thought. But in my opinion, people who don't listen to advice are angry, right? There's an angry will, right? Like like someone, I don't know, who's got a compulsive eating disorder and someone says, you know, you really shouldn't eat that second piece of cheesecake. What do they say? Um, they get angry. Yeah. Or if you say to someone, I, I think you've had enough to drink, what do they say? Um... I could drink twice this amount. Yeah, don't you know? You try try taking the drink away from their hand, right? They're going to get angry. Don't you limit my angry will? Now, obviously, <laughs> your daughter is happy, but I'm sorry, and you probably have had moments of being sorry that people didn't know the right way to talk you out of being dicknapped, right? Which is when you get kidnapped by your penis, right? We're going for eggs. There's a cliff. I don't care. We'll jump. We'll make it. Ah. Wiley Coyote time, right? And I'm sorry that the people didn't know how to talk you out of this, right? Because, I mean, I, I, I know you love your daughter and you, you're happy that she's in your life, but it, it would have been nicer to have all of this with a stable relationship and a woman you loved and all that, right? Yeah. Right. So five teachers cared enough about you to take you into their classroom and say, don't do it, <laughs> which is kind of, I don't know, unusual. I never got dating advice from any of my teachers, so they must have really liked you or really been afraid of your ex. Yes. And I get, yeah, most people, when they really want something and people tell them they don't think it's a good idea, they usually push forward because they're angry. Don't drink and drive. I'm fine, goddammit. Right? Yes. Give me my keys back. I know what I'm doing. There's an anger in that when you try and limit people's will, right? Yes. Now, you were, of course, in the full flush of youthful, manly hormones, right? Yes. And, you know, the old phrase, young, dumb, and full of cum, we've all been there, right? Yes. <laughs> all, all been there. And the degree to which 
you're willing to overlook necessary virtues in order to pursue a sexual preference regardless of personality is scary for a woman who wants to get involved in you, right? With you. Because if you're willing to throw caution to the wind in pursuit of sexual gratification, or at least you were when you were younger and not that much younger either, then her concern would be, well, okay, so the next big-titted vixen who comes along is going to take you away from me because, right? So you really need to know why you didn't listen. And, you know, just saying hormones, I mean, that may be kind of a weird answer, I guess. But the problem is you're still young. I think this stuff fades away from men four or five days after they're dead. Um, and uh, I, I think it's called a stiff because you still get a boner if some shapely woman <laughs> walks by. But if if you say, well, it was just hormones, I was you know, just young and whatever, right? Well, then you still have all those hormones. So a woman's going to be like, okay, so this guy's can get dicknapped any time. And so he's not going to be someone I want to get involved with, right? So you really need to dig into and figure out what it was in you and not like some flaw or some, you know, whatever, right? But what was it in you? Like, I mean, and just to give you an example, right? And I've talked about this before, so I'll be really brief about it. But I was involved in a lengthy relationship. I proposed and all of that, got a ring and was going to get married. And let me tell you, um, Uh, why Why could I not get out? I, I mean, it was clear. It was clear. Like, in hindsight, it was blindingly obvious that the relationship was not the right fit. Let's put it as nicely as possible. But why couldn't I get out of it? Because I couldn't draw a line down that relationship without drawing a line down most of the other relationships in my life. In other words, I couldn't say, well, I'm not being treated right in this relationship without inevitably through the domino effect of universal principles realizing that I wasn't being treated well in a lot of my other relationships. Not all of them, but a lot of the other ones. And that was the that was the keystone of the arch that I had to keep propped up. Because that's what happened when I finally said, I can't do this anymore. And I got out, a lot of my other relationships began to fall by the wayside as well. And because I had that knowledge I, I was able to explain my past, right? When I met my wife, I was in my 30s, attractive. I had a couple of bucks. I'd had a pretty successful career. And I was single. And of course, the question is, well, why? <laughs> if you're such a catch, right? And I had to know in great detail why my previous relationships hadn't worked out. And there's little more terrifying when you're like if you have self-knowledge and you're interested in someone there's little more terrifying than then saying i had no idea why the relationship didn't work out or have no idea why i got into that relationship in the first place right like i've mentioned this before too i was dating a woman we went on a couple of dates and then she was saying telling me all about her one of her past relationships you know i was with the guy for two years we lived together for six months and then i came home one day from work and he just he'd packed up and vanished I never heard from him again. I have no idea what happened. And I was like, okay, <laughs> bye. You know, I hate to say it. You're a nice lady, smart and all that. But, uh, you know, if you're with a guy for two years, you have no idea there are any problems in the relationship. And he packs up and leaves and you still have no idea what happened. Then you are not a person 
who's driving with their eyes open, and I don't want to be a passenger. And I'm not putting you in that category, obviously, right? But but saying she had big tits, and this is what happened, it's not going to be enough to make a smart woman feel safe in dating you. And that's what you want, right? You want a woman who's got self-knowledge, who's not going to be doing all this ridiculous stuff about, like, I have a baby, but I want to go to the bar, <laughs> right? You want someone of more quality, to put it as mildly as possible, than that. But somebody of more quality, you know, you want higher standards, but they're going to have higher standards of you. And someone of more quality is going to be cross-examining you like, uh, you know, some Gestapo guy with a swing and light bulb and a truncheon. And you better have your story straight. And, and you better know what, like how you ended up where you ended up. Because she's going to be sniffing deep for self-knowledge. And shallow answers, easy answers, answers that, that, that don't hang together are going to be very alarming to her. D- does this make any sense? Uh, yes. All right. So, I mean, I don't, uh, I don't know what the answer is. And, you know, I think it's probably a bit late in the call for us to sort of figure that one out now. You know, if you can get to any therapy or whatever, I think that would be great. Um, I think if you, if if the woman is of high quality enough, then I think that she she and you will both negotiate about the best way to introduce her to your daughter. Of course, you don't want to introduce someone to your daughter who's not going to be around, unless you just introduce her as a friend or whatever. But you don't want to. Your daughter has already been traumatized enough by having a um, a stay here, go away come back, get lost kind of mom and some of the inconsistencies in your father fathering, you know, I guess of which most have been due to the vagaries of the mom but she's already had a lot of people coming and going in her life so you don't want any of that of course with a girlfriend so, you know, I think my suggestion would be to you know, if the woman's of quality enough, she will also understand this as well and that there shouldn't be a bond with I mean, ideally, there shouldn't be a strong bond with the daughter until you know you're getting married to the woman. But I get that that I guess that that can that can be a fairly long time. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, well, concerning that, uh, I, I had a funny dream once. Like you are right. Uh, it, that is what I believe too. There shouldn't be an introduction until one knows that it would be more permanent relationship. Uh, but then you're left with the awkward moment where it's like, oh, we've really hit it off. We've been dating for six months, seven months. Let's get married. And then it's like, oh, yes. And you've never met my daughter. No, no, I get that. But but that's something you negotiate with a woman of quality. And you can invite her over and just say, you know, this is a, a friend of mine and, and so on and see how they get along uh, and all of that. I mean, so you don't have to sort of say, let's get married. Now you can meet my daughter. I mean, there is a blend which you can transition to. But 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 here's the thing. This and this, I really want you to get right. And I'm sorry to say it in that way because it sounds like well, the other stuff's really irrelevant. But this is the important stuff. But this this is the thing that I really want you to get behind, which is that you are really um, in a, in a deep hole as far as sexual attractiveness goes, right? Uh, yes. And that's just. Now, I've said this to the single moms 
and I'm saying this to you, uh, and I'm saying that not not because that means you know you got to settle, but it it should um, hopefully give you a sense of um, how to add more value, right? I mean, you know, if if you don't have experience and you want the job, you just have to work harder, right? And and since you're currently, you know, the reality is, if a woman could could do really well, she could do better than you. And I don't mean that you're not a quality person. It's just that, right, you come with baggage. You come with a daughter that she's going to have to figure out how to get along with when she wasn't, when she's not the mom, right? Because, you know, the your daughter, as she gets older, can always say, you're not my mom, you know, that kind of stuff, right? It's complicated. And she's got, you know, you've got a crazy ex floating around who could come and nuke your family structure pretty much any time that she wants. And, you know, if she gets married to you, is she going to pay half the legal bills for this kind of stuff, right? I mean, it's it's a mess, right? And and so, you know, you could be the hottest thing on two legs, but any woman is going to look down the corridor of time and say, okay, well, you know, he's he's got trauma, right? He's traumatized by his ex, He's got a kid uh, that I'm going to figure out how, how, how to get along with and how to bond with and how to take care of when she's going to have issues because she grew up with an inconstant mom and a dad who, you know, through no fault of his own, was sometimes there and sometimes not. And so the kid's kind of traumatized. So he's kind of traumatized. There's an ex floating around like a viper who could strike venom into the heart of the family at any time. And you know, maybe she's going to grab the kid and make a run for the border, or maybe she's going to start costing us tens of thousands of dollars in legal bills, or God knows what, right? Maybe she's going to get married to some crazy guy and want the crazy guy coming over and being part of the daughters. Like, there is a huge amount of negatives through no fault of your own in the present. There's a huge amount of negatives floating around dating you, right? And I say that not, you know... Not because you know I want you to give up or, or or be in despair, but this is the same advice I'd give to a single mom, which is then you you've got to totally up your game to to even compete with unattached men, right? And the upping your game means you know just being a really spectacularly great person, you know. And I'm I'm talking to you about that because seems to me like you can go the distance that way, right? I mean, you really care about your daughter. You've really stuck by her and fought hard for what's best for her in a very difficult situation. So, you know, massive props and admiration for that. But as far as attracting a quality woman, you have to, you know, this is your opportunity to, you know, go fully Olympic in terms of self-knowledge and stuff, if, if that makes any sense. And that's why I'm being annoyingly pushbacky on your explanations as to how all this came about. Because if, if you know, you with minus of daughter, not that your daughter's a minus, but I just mean in terms of for a, a new woman coming along, you with, you know, minus point for daughter, minus point for crazy ex, minus point for trauma and so on. Okay, so you're behind the eight ball to some degree. And so you overcome that. With, you know, massive amounts of self-knowledge and the biggest, warmest heart known to mankind and, you know, having gone to therapy and learning how to work relationships for the best and learning how to negotiate and like all of the stuff that you can to overcome those negatives, then you can end up with a greater plus than you could have had even without the minuses. Does that, does that make any sense? Uh, yes, it does. But that, I think, is uh, 
is the challenge, right? I mean, and I say this, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to compare this to your situation, but, you know, we talk about some pretty alarming stuff and some crazy stuff and some challenging stuff in, in this show. And so I have to figure out how to make this stuff as palatable as possible to people. And, uh, you know, <laughs> because philosophy has led me to some challenging places, you know, like strong atheism and anarchism, voluntary family and all that kind of stuff. So then the challenge is philosophy puts me at minus 10. So how, like relative to people's perceptions. So how the hell do I get people to listen when we start at minus 10? Well, I have to just compensate for the challenges of philosophy with, you know, some wit, some challenge, some metaphors, some analogies, some research, you know, all, all that kind of stuff. Like to, we have to overcome, we have to dig our way out of that giant hole of philosophy um, and relative to people's existing belief systems, we have to make the show so engaging uh, and so enjoyable that people are even willing to be shocked, appalled, irritated, and, uh, <laughs> you know, and angered by the show and still come back. And so, um, and, and because like the, the quality of what it is that we're trying to do here is directly proportional to the difficulty of the content. And so in a way, I'm grateful for the challenges of philosophy because they have really helped spark some hopefully positive and creative ways of getting philosophy across to people. So again, I'm not sort of saying it's directly analogous to your situation, but through being behind the eight ball, you can become really great at playing pool, if that makes sense. And with the right woman, with the right woman, all the decisions about when to introduce and all that, you, it'll, you'll negotiate that with her and um, you'll know when the right time is because it will be not something that you decide individually, but that you and your girlfriend or your partner will will decide uh, through, through negotiation and, and it will be the right time and it will work out well. But again, I think that you've got to work at upping your game. Not, I'm not saying you don't have it now, but I mean, I think even further, there's no, you, you almost can't go too far in terms of upping your game in, in terms of what you can offer someone. All right. Does that, does that make sense? That's a, something that sounds like a potential plan? Uh, yes, it does. Thank you very much. Uh, I tend to overthink, so I'm a computer scientist, so that's kind of my job. Uh, <laughs> so the idea of just delaying uh, concern of an issue never even crossed my mind. Uh, neither did the concept of if I'm behind by five points, better make sure in the last nine holes I'm already losing two under par. Yeah, look, if if you have, you know, great self-knowledge and through these complications, it has caused you to not only have your daughter in your life, who I'm sure is a great plus, but it also provokes you to greater pursuit of self-knowledge and self-honesty and, and so on, then the great thing is that you will repel people like your ex and you will attract people that you want in your life. That's just the inevitable you know, if, if I suddenly start switching to Japanese, I'm not going to have a lot of conversations with English speakers, but I'm going to end up chatting with Japanese speakers who are going to overhear me and so on, right? So when you switch to self-knowledge, you end up not having much in common or much to say with people who don't have self-knowledge or who, like most people, are resolutely set against self-knowledge, and you end up just attracting people who speak self-knowledge. I mean, so when you do pursue that, 
it will be a lot easier because it would be something like the woman of quality who cares about you will also care about your daughter and will want to do the best by her and by you. And so that negotiation will be something mutual between you that will work out really well for your daughter. All right. All right. All right. Uh, keep posted if you can. And I sort of say this to <laughs> to everyone uh, who calls in. I really do sort of care how things go uh, in the future and down the road. Uh, and uh, thanks, everyone, so much for calling in. You know, it is, it is such a pleasure to have uh, conversations with people about what is meaningful, what matters, and what can really make a difference in their lives. And I hugely appreciate that opportunity. Uh, if you enjoy these conversations, uh, as you know, nothing is free. If you can go to freedomainradio.com slash donate, please, please to help out the show. We really uh, need your help. freedomainradio.com slash donate. Uh, put your money where your ears are, <laughs> I would say, and help out the show. Have yourselves a wonderful, wonderful night. We will talk to you on the weekend. Me all